So good morning everybody. Thank you for taking the time today, beautiful sunny day, to come and study and practice together and hopefully, uh, hi Kyle, (laughs) Uh, uh, learn um, about who we're not (laughs) or who we think we are. Um, or maybe a bit of both. So I'm curious to know who's here today. So how many of you, I uh, uh, recognize a lot of faces, but who's new to Spirit Rock today? Okay, some of you, welcome. And um, how many of you are new to mindfulness meditation practice? Like, is, it, is that a new thing for you, relatively in the last year or two or something? Okay. Um, and why are you here? <laughs> uh, what what brings you here today? Anyone like to say <clears throat> in a word or two, or a sentence, please? Yeah, just that um, your description of this retreat talked about uh, reforming our impression of who we are and who mm. we are not. And mm-hmm. That's what I need to do. That's Mm-hmm. Reforming our impression and sense of self. Okay, good. What else? Yes. I was at the TED talk last night. Oh yeah, and yeah, that was yes. Uh huh. Great. Thanks. Yeah, I was moderating. So Marin TEDx had a salon yesterday, which was really delightful on consciousness, consciousness and the brain, um, if and how they have a relationship. Um, which is sort of very fitting given this theme today of exploring self and identity, which definitely, and exploring consciousness and that mysterious phenomena is definitely part of that conversation. Yes, other reasons for being here today? Yes. I'm Jeannie. Hi, Jeannie. Anybody else going through some change, transition, right? Often a good, a good, uh, you know, I mean, that's life, right? It's a lot of change and transition. Um, and also really challenges our identity and who we took ourselves to be and who we think we are and who, where we think we're going and who is the we that's going anywhere. And so, um, yeah. So what I thought we'd do is well, we'll sit together first and just explore experientially uh, this theme and then I'll share some reflections and we'll do some practices and um, go, go from there. So, Okay, so um, find, get into a comfortable uh, posture as comfortable as you're able to find. So sitting upright, uh, sense of groundedness through your lower half of your body, so ideally legs, feet, knees if you're on the floor touching the ground, uh, feet on the floor if you're on a chair, sitting upright.
just taking a moment to settle your attention into your physical experience. So in meditation we are orienting to experience through awareness, shifting the gravitational pull from experience to the knowing of experience. So paying attention to the lens through which you're looking, this lens of awareness. And seeing what is revealed, seeing what you're present to, what is awareness knowing? Often our first immediate experience is awareness of sounds. The soundscape, the ambient sounds, sounds of my voice. So just being aware, sitting with this light attention to experience to the changing soundscape. And noticing how sounds come and go by themselves. how sounds are known quite effortlessly. Sounds appear and knowing happens. Recognition happens. Hearing happens. Mindfulness of hearing. And then we notice our attention is drawn also to other things. Perhaps sensations in the body. Taking a moment to feel the immediate, visceral, direct experience of sitting, sensing,
noticing how the body is a field universe of sensations, tingling, vibration, moving, tensing, relaxing, warmth, coolness, lifting, falling. And noticing, too, how these sensations are known quite effortlessly. Sounds appearing and disappearing. Sensations coming and going. field of experience of body, breath is known as felt, this movement of organic life, breathing itself, inhaling, expanding, exhaling, releasing. can notice how those sensations too happen by themselves, can be known and felt quite effortlessly. Sensations of the inhale, lifting of the ribcage, the moving of the belly, the air passing through the nostrils with each inhale, exhale. Noticing how attention is also naturally drawn to other experience, to thoughts as they come and go, to images, memories, and at times drawn to feeling and awareness of our emotional life, moods, states of mind, emotions. All this field of experience in the body, in the heart, in the mind, all happening by itself, rising out of conditions.
only effort that's needed is simply to stay here, to be present to this passing show, this passing field of experience, sounds, sensations, feelings, moods, thoughts, and at times cognizant of this knowing quality of awareness itself, all happening by itself. And at times we may notice, we may wake up in a long thought sequence or a memory or we space out and we come to and we can see how mindfulness naturally reappears, reestablishes itself. Present moment awareness returns. 
And as that happens, we continue and resume the practice of abiding here with awareness, present to the flow of experience, sounds, sensations, breath, feelings, thoughts, At times you're present to the flow of physical, sensory experience. And other times we notice the mind is busy ruminating, thinking about ourselves, our stories, our life, our dramas, our plans, our worries. Just noticing that ruminating mind that's often lost in a 
flurry of thoughts about ourselves. that strengthens and reinforces the sense of self. And noticing that without judgment. And then releasing that thought and returning over and over just to the flow of physical sensory experience, sounds, sensations, breath body.
last few minutes of the sitting. Making the intention to really be here. And at the same time, noticing however strong that intention, the mind has a life of its own. We often sit attending to the habits that we've cultivated, thinking, worrying, planning, checking out, story making, judging. And as we bring the practice to a close, from the perspective of awareness, there's just been a flow of experience happening, coming and going. From the perspective of the mind, we may have all kinds of stories. There was a good meditation, bad meditation. I'm a good meditator, I'm a bad meditator. Did it wrong. So just noticing the stories, the interpretations, the layers you may add on to experience. Does it feel warm in here? So, uh, where's the volunteers, Brian? Could you, yeah, so can you ask her to put the, not the AC, but just the, the, make the air, bring the air cool, I mean, put the fans on, cool, but not the AC yet.
So in the in the text, there's a lovely um, dialogue the Buddha has with a young seeker called Bahia, and uh, this seeker Bahia has an urgency to understand. Um, the Buddha's teaching because he had some quite renown and um, and he pesters the Buddha and eventually the Buddha says okay I'll, I'll give you the he only wanted the essence of his teaching he didn't want the whole long <laughs> list and the 52 of that and the 24 of that and he was like just no, like give me the give me the pith and the Buddha says, okay, he says, in the seeing, there is only the seeing. In the hearing, there is only the hearing. In the sensing, there is only the sensing. In the cognized, there is only the cognized. When you understand it in this way, when you understand it in the seen, there's just the seen. In the heard, just the heard. In the sense, just the sense. In the cognized, just the cognized you will understand that you are neither here, nor there, nor in between. And this is the end of suffering. So it's a slightly cryptic uh, teaching, as often the Buddha's teaching is. But the first part, I think, is, well, it's all relevant to what we're doing today, but the first part particularly, right? he's saying, in the seeing, there's just the seeing. In the hearing, just the hearing. In the cognized, just the cognized. All the rest is story. All the rest is extra. All the rest is add-on. Most of our life is add-on to the raw elements and bad data of our experience. If you don't believe me, when you go to the bathroom at the break, you look in the mirror in the seeing, there's just the seeing. Yeah, God, but I'm looking a little more gray. I don't know. And uh, oh, I don't know. this doesn't quite go with my skin color. And oh, there's a few more lines here. If I put my strong glasses on, I really see I'm getting old. Oh, I should work out more. I'm looking a little, and you know, story, 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 right? You know how it goes. It's a bad hair day. Oh, no. In the hearing, just the hearing. What's that sound? Why is the AC so loud? Why does that person keep moving next to me and shuffling and sniffling? And there's not a lot of sound here, so I can't make much stories about it. But you know, you could do like you know, there's always plenty of things to think about and complain about and. In the sensing, there's just the sensing, right? How much do you just notice? Oh, twinge in my lower back. Oh, sharp pain in my neck. Feeling tired. Versus all the stories we make about that. I'm so tired, I should have stayed in bed. Why did I stay up so late? I'm still trying to get through Game of Thrones and I just can't put it down. And then it keeps me up. Why do I do that? They say you shouldn't watch your screen at night because it's bad for your eyes. In the seeing, in the hearing, in the, in the hearing, in the sensing, just the sense. In the cognized, is just the cognized, right? 
So we're sitting and we have a thought like, um, you know, can't believe my partner said that to me this morning. I mean, what were they thinking? It was so mean and it was so insensitive and so cruel. And when I get home, we're going to have this out and I'm going to talk to my therapist. And Story, 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 right? It's called being human. The the brain is an amazing story-making apparatus. It's how we make sense of the world. It's how we we can cohese as as a species. It's how we evolved as a species to be dominant in amongst Homo erectus species. Um, and it's an amazing thing. We can create beautiful literature and art and all kinds of things with the ways that we add on meaning and story, interpretation and context. And, and mostly we're lost in that realm of experience. The, in the neuroscience world, they call it the default mode network. When they look at the brain at rest, they were curious that the brain was really active when we're theoretically not, you know, when, when you t- tell subjects in an fMRI machine, just do nothing, just relax. The brain's very active and it's mostly active down the midline, which is where a lot of the cognitive processes around sense of self uh, and identity and um, anticipation and story and, uh, so, um, and that, that default mode network is mostly rumination, mostly negative, slightly anxious, slightly future anticipatory oriented. And it's where we live a lot of our life, right? Just meditate and you notice that, right? How, actually there's this great slide yesterday. So there's a wonderful researcher, Helen Wang, who um, is a, is a, a professor at UCSF, and she's studying meditation uh, with with fMRI machines so, and uh, with the imaging that comes from that. And um, she's able she's, with this very 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 sort of refined individualized test. She's able to see when people are with the breath, when people are with their physical experience, and when people are ruminating. And of course, their self-assessment of how well their meditation is doing is very different than what the brain scan is saying. <laughs> and uh, a lot of the time, people are in this ruminative mode. Thinking, worrying, planning, dreaming, drama. Um, you know, the endless stories of the self. <clears throat> This is from Mark Twain. Biographies are but the clothes and the buttons of the person. The biography of the person themselves cannot be written. Yet we spend a lot of time writing our biography. (laughs) What a biography. So if this made us happy, then we'd all be happy. Because we're all really good at it. Right? We didn't have to go to college to do it. We didn't have to train. We didn't have to meditate. You'll sit on the couch and ruminate on your life. But it doesn't make us happy. In fact, the contrary, it usually creates stress, anxiety, 
anticipatory fears. Um, and that's one layer of it, you know. Another layer of the, the ruminative mind is it's judgmental. Anybody judge themselves here? Anybody critical? Right? It's like a silly question these days. I mean, of course I judge myself. How would I get out of bed in the morning? I'm such a slob. How would I clean the kitchen if I don't, you know, berate myself? How would I get to work on time? So that layer of, of thinking and judging about ourselves and who we are and how we should be or how we're not and how we could have been and what we should have done and right, a whole other layer of mental suffering, torture. My last book, not this book, but my last book was about that, Make Peace With Your Mind. How we can bring awareness and compassion to that as effective tools for, for disengaging from that habit. Very painful habit. So, you know, the Buddha said, uh, all things arise with the mind. Hello, would you like a seat at the front here? Please, there's some uh, Zafus and uh, Zabatons here. Please make yourself comfortable. Um, What was I just saying? Please, yes. Right, so the Buddha said, all things arise with the mind. With our thoughts we make the world. We create the world. And with that story creation, we believe that creation. We believe the stories we tell ourselves. We believe the stories about ourself. Again, Mark Twain, we do not deal much in facts when we are contemplating ourselves. We take usually what the mind is saying to be true. Another beautiful line from the Buddha, he said, whatever... Whatever that which we conceive is ever other than is so. Whatever that which we conceive, whatever we think about, is ever other than is so. We take our thoughts, perceptions to be reality, and they're mostly thoughts and perceptions. Just that. So with awareness, with mindfulness, we can bring attention to the story-making process, the identity-making process. See how we take these thoughts, these views, these identities to be real, to be who we are. You know, we come into this world as a, as a young, beautiful, innocent being. We have no identity. We have no we haven't really developed a cognitive capacity to, to, to do that. We, we, we come in, as Freud put it, in, in an oceanic sense of oneness. We're indivisible. There's no sense of self or other. We haven't moved into a dualistic perception. Which is why maybe babies, except when they need, you know, crying and needing to poop and feed, aside from those times... They often, we were around babies and they have the sense of 
bliss, peacefulness, like serenity. They're not lost in a painful duality. And then as our cognitive structures develop, we develop a sense of separation, a sense of identity, a sense of uh, an internal self-representation, a self-image that gets strengthened with reflection from others, through thought, through experience. So it coalesces into this very strong sense of me, of I, of separate from everyone else, which is a necessary part of egoic functioning. We need that sense of self to function. And, you know, like, and and as, you know, in those, maybe in the twos, you know, threes, you know, it's very easy to see. This is mine. I'm not going to let Johnny play with my truck. It's mine. Right? This this really heightened sense of me and mine and my identity and my stuff. And, um, and we go, there, there, Johnny, it's okay. You can play with, you know, it's good to share your toys. And <laughs> we could probably to do with that less than ourselves. <clears throat> so over time, we develop this very strong sense of identity, of self, of me, who I am in the world, my accomplishments, my story, my history, my personality, my stuff. And it all seems very real and very solid and very important. And then, you know, you might encounter these teachings of the Buddha and the Buddha saying, you know, this, this misperception of self is one of the core drivers of suffering misunderstanding our identity source of great pain and we wonder what the hell is he on about what does that mean how is this sense of self the cause of suffering so interestingly when the Buddha was asked by another wanderer Bachagota from another different sect he was asked, um, he asked the Buddha, is there a self? Because in, the, in, the, in that Indian milieu, the, there was varying views of the self, including Atman, sort of eternal, universal self. Um, and people knew that the Buddha taught this teaching of anatta, not self. And, and so the Buddha didn't answer. And then they had the one, the, the Bhattacharya said, well, is there not a self? Again, the Buddha remained silent. And then Bhattacharya got tired of the Buddha not answering and said, well, you, know, you have many words, you've got nothing to say, I'm out of here. And, and Ananda, the Buddha's disciple, the attendant and cousin, uh, said to the Buddha, how come you didn't tell him how it is? You teach about this all the time. What, what, what's, up, what's with the silence? Oh, great orator. And he said, the Buddha said, well, if I'd said there was a self, or if I said there wasn't a self, it would have just created a thicket of views. It would have just added to his concepts and beliefs that wouldn't necessarily 
do anything to help relieve him or illuminate him from what's really true in his direct experience. So um, this is not to be understood, well, it can be understood intellectually, but to really understand and live with uh, this, this, the teaching of anatta, of not-self, we have to understand it through an immediate experience. So the reason that I was guiding the meditation in that way, just sitting, doing nothing much, nothing much, nothing in particular, hearing, sensing, breathing, thinking, feeling, observing. We can do that from the place of a very busy meditator. Okay, and let's meditate. Okay, now I'm going to meditate and I'm going to do it right. I'm going to do it good and I'm going to nail all those hindrances and I'm going to, you know, get rid of those thoughts and, you know, whatever our story is about meditation that's slightly caricatured. But, um, you know, we can have that kind of like, okay, like today, yesterday was a mess. Today I'm really, I'm going to just, you know, I'm going to grit the teeth and... Um, and there's a whole sense of identity of self who's meditating, the doer, the one who's meditating. Or we can sit down, as we did, and just simply be present to the flow of experience. Seeing, hearing, sensing, breathing, feeling, thinking, knowing, spacing out, returning, distracting, resuming awareness, over and over, this flow of experience happening kind of by itself, not exactly by itself. Everything happens because of causal conditions, because we live in a causal universe. Nothing arises out of the blue, but but it's sort of happening selflessly, as in there's no one behind the show Directing it. Right? Of all those experiences that you had this morning, all those sensations, all those thoughts, all those feelings, all those sounds, all those states of mind and moods, right? did you, whoever the you is, ask any of them to, to happen, to come here? Did you ask that discomfort and ache in the body to happen? Did you ask that thought about work or your high school teacher or you know what you're going to do for lunch on Sunday with the kids? Like, did, you, did you consciously, sometimes we do, but mostly, did you consciously will those things to happen? Or did a wave of sadness happen? Or did thoughts about the game last night happen? Or did the sleepiness happen or the anxiety and restlessness happen triggered by thoughts or memories? So from the vantage point of awareness, we see that life, this organic life called body, called heart, mind, me, whatever we call it, is a process that's selfless, that's not self. Not me, not mine. that we uh, take very much to be who we are, but from the perspective of awareness, 
It's just experience. As uh, uh, Manindraji, a wonderful teacher in this tradition, used to say, empty phenomena, ro- empty phenomena rolling on. Just phenomena coming and going, coming and going, and we're just simply present to the flow of experience. And even though we are present is an, adi- is, is an added layer, there's just awareness knowing phenomena rolling on. And then the thought arises, the I thought arises, oh, I'm aware of phenomena. I'm aware of my body and my thoughts and my meditation is going really well this morning. Or it's going pathetically bad this morning. I'm, and therefore, I must be a bad meditator. Right? That's where we take birth in an identity, a self, in that case, a diminished negative self of someone who's a bad meditator. Or conversely, we're meditating and we're surprisingly calm and the mind's relatively peaceful and we're not troubled and we're relatively present and focused without trying. And and the thought arises, oh, it's going really swimmingly. I'm really present today. It feels really nice to be here at Spirit Rock. I should come and do a retreat here. Maybe I could take a job here and then I could meditate a lot and I would really, you know, advance in my practice and become a great meditator and maybe I could teach this stuff one day. I love sharing things with people and this would be a lovely thing to share and maybe I'll lead my own retreats and build my own little center. You know, I live out in the woods and, you know, people would come and wouldn't it be great and, you know, we spend the next... 15 minutes building this empire of meditation because we had a few minutes of concentration. <laughs> we built up this whole story of, you know, me the great meditator. <laughs> and then our knee starts hurting, we get restless, and, like, uh, and then maybe I'll just go back to my job. You know, it's kind of boring, this meditation stuff. And that's how we make the with our thoughts we make the world and so the the good news is we have this liberating quality of awareness mindfulness that allows us to see this whole process to see experience thoughts self-creation, identities. Right? And of course, once we develop an identity, then we realize we're in a world of other identities, of other selves. And the ego is always needing to know where it is in relationship to other selves. So you come in here and, 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 and maybe the spiritual self, the meditation self, the Buddhist self, is you put that garment on today because you're at Spirit Rock. Put my best meditation spiritual self on. And then we start busy comparing ourselves. Well, that person's moving and fidgeting and looking restless and looking out the window. They can't be very very enlightened. Well, at least I'm doing better than that person. But that person over there looks really serene and, and they haven't moved for the last two hours. Damn it. <laughs> I, hope they, I hope they scratch soon or something. 
And so we're busy comparing, inflating, deflating ourselves in comparison to others, which is a very anxious game because it's always changing. And particularly painful when we're identifying with a deficient sense of self, an unworthy sense of self, a negative sense of self that usually rises from either conditioning or you know, painful experience or from our own self-judgment and self-assessment and self-putting ourselves down. And that's um, very common and very painful. We walk around with often a deficient, unworthy, unlovable sense of self that our body's not good enough that our mind's not smart enough that our bank account isn't good enough that our health isn't good enough that our age isn't the right age or whatever the story is we take birth in these identities that are super painful if we believe them and if we identify with our thoughts as who we are or our body as who we are or our bank balance or the size of our house is who we are Right? Society tells us these things are important. This is how we determine value, wealth, success, fame, power, etc. So, so this is the theme that we'll be exploring today. And um, and it's a mystery. It's a mysterious one. It's one of the most subtle facets of the Buddha's teaching: both anatta, emptiness of self, and shunyata, emptiness of phenomena, the not selfness of experience. And it's also been the subject of a lot of uh, study with neuroscientists and scientists. What is the self? Where is the self located, if anywhere? It was a great uh, feature in Time magazine. This was some time ago now, but they keep re- they repeat it every every few some years. And the, the summary of, of the Time magazine did a, did a meta-analysis of all the studies and research on on the self and identity, trying to find its location in the brain. It says, after more than a century of looking for it, brain researchers have long since concluded that there is no conceivable place for a self to be located in the physical brain, and that it simply does not exist. That's Time magazine. This is not, you know, spirituality consciousness uh, periodical. This is, you know, mainstream Americana saying the self does not exist and it's not locatable in the brain. Even though we associate our identity with, you know, mind, head, it seems like we're directing the show from here with our thoughts, with our choices, with our actions. So what does this mean? There's no locatable place in the brain. It doesn't exist. But it seems like it exists. It seems like, well, we're certainly here. This, it's not saying that we don't exist. This body and mind, they exist. But the identity that we create around it, that is a construct. What the Buddha's pointing to is how we construct an identity. An identity is constructed by thoughts, beliefs, reflections, 
history and that identity construction is um, uh, not what it seems. Or what it's pointing to is insubstantial. We can see this in, you know, when we go through radical changes in our lives. You know, like, for example, after the last great recession, right? people who are incredibly successful careers on Wall Street or in real estate or in banking or insurance suddenly were completely broke without a job, without an identity, without wealth, without status. A huge collapse in identity. What does it say about that identity? It's dependent, it's uncertain, it's impermanent. Maybe you have an identity or have had an identity as someone who's vital and a great athlete. And then you get older and you lose the vitality and you're no longer a great athlete. What happens to that identity? It changes. You might cling to it. My friend's father, who clings to his Olympic gold medal as a swimmer in the 50s, But he's no longer, I mean, I guess he could be called an Olympic athlete. So one of the the most easy doorways into this, because it's easy to get lost in our heads. What does he mean? Identity? It feels like I'm real and I'm me. And what does he mean? It doesn't, you know, there's a lot of stories. So, just a couple of clarifications. One is the Buddha never said there is no self. Never said there is no self. He said things are not self. Not separate. He didn't say they don't exist. It just means they don't exist in the way that we construct them to be. So his analysis of self is it's impermanent, It's not separate, not substantial, not reliable. The sense of self is not permanent. Our sense of self-identity is always changing because we're always changing. Life is always changing. Experience is always changing. Not permanent, not reliable, not dependable, and not substantive. We really look and we really pay attention. Well, find myself like the brain researchers. Find the self in the brain. Not findable. We're a process of experience, conditions, thoughts, feelings, intentions, etc. And so we can, so I want us to pay attention to this today to notice the changing nature of self. Like this morning, maybe you woke up and the alarm went off and was like, oh, I just want a day off. Why did I choose to go to Spirit Rock? I just want to sleep. I'm a little grumpy. You know, I've got to get up. And And then we have our coffee. And we have our second cup of coffee. And we're like, oh. Oh, it's a beautiful day. Wow, I'm going to Spirit Rock. Cool, I'm not going to work. That's fantastic. Look at me. I'm going to, you know, do my spiritual work. And I'm going to meditate. And I'm so holy. And then I'm great. And this is good. And, you know. And then we check our email. And our boss like, where the hell are you? Why in your work today? We went behind deadlines and we got these projects and, you know, and we start feeling 
a little anxious or a little afraid or uh, bad that we took the day off when everybody in our our team is working hard on a project. And on it goes, you know. The sense of self up and down, dependent on conditions. I remember this this young man, I I used to teach in India in Bangaya, and uh, we're in this middle of a 20-day retreat, and he comes in, he says, you know, I said, my retreat started really well. I, I, I just, you know, picked up where I left off from my last retreat, deep concentration, really happy, a lot of peace, a lot of well-being, really inspired and a lot of faith. And, and I got so inspired, I started thinking about what, what am I, I going to do after the retreat? And maybe I can go to Burma and ordain as a monk and, you know, and just spend my time for the next few years because I you know, freed up and I don't have to go back home yet, I have no job. And I could really go deep in the practice, and he got really excited about that. And you know, this this whole level of faith arose because his experience was so deep and profound. But he's in the middle of a twenty-day meditation retreat. That, that that excitement and faith can you know goes for a while, but then it starts getting you agitated. He started planning and what he was going to do and how he was going to tell his parents, and you know, he's in relationship and is she going to come with him and all this stuff. And he starts getting really troubled and 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 stirred up. And the meditation far from being peaceful and serene, suddenly gets really full of thoughts and plans and worries. And and then he starts kind of really not liking the meditation because it's sort of, it's, he's having to sit with his restlessness and his excitement and his, and his planning mind. And at some point, he wants to leave the retreat. Comes in, it's like, you know, I, I first I thought I wanted to ordain as a monk and now I want to just get out of the retreat and go the, the identities right, rise and fall with the wind, with circumstance, with the breeze. So the question is, who are we in all of that? If our sense of self is changing so much, who are we? The Buddha said, the self of yesterday, today, or that of tomorrow, for whose preservation you clamor, which one are you? Who are we? These changing sets? Are we all of them? Are we none of them? Do we like one but not another? This is from Mark Epstein from the book um, Thoughts Without a Thinker. Wonderful exposition about this teaching and that, that the title is such a beautiful title. Thoughts Without a Thinker. Our thoughts think themselves. We think we're the ones thinking them but you know, again, if you pay attention, are you really thinking those thoughts? Mostly they're happening randomly, spawned by a trillion neurons and synapses. And He says, the I that we are studying is not identical with the ego, but it is a component. It is described as a self-representation, a fused and confused, constantly changing series of self-images. We string those self-images enough together consistently over time and it creates a cohesive sense of me. And so we, the one question to ask is, where do, I, where do I take my identity? Do I more identify with myself as the body? Like we often say, this is me. Point to our heart. Do we more identify with ourselves as a as our mind, as our thoughts? You know, and if we look at those things, they're all changing. 
Not one single cell in the body except the cells in your cornea, I think. The iris. There's only one set of cells in the body that don't change. Everything else from when the time we were a baby, teenager, midlife, different cells, different body. This dust in the room that you see, well, you can't see now, but you will when the light comes through from the sun. That's other people. That's skin from other people. It's kind of gross, but um, it's true. 70% of dust is skin. So when you're cleaning, dusting a home, it's like, oh, there I am. Okay. <laughs> I'll keep it later in a little box with my fingernails, which is also me, and my hair, which is also me. But we think, you know, if you see it in the sink, it's gross. If we see it on our head, it's like, oh, glad it's still there, just, just about. Stay on, stay on. So, so a few more words and then we'll do some practice outside. So for me, as, as many of you know, I, I do a lot of my meditation and my practice outside. I, I'm a big lover of the outdoors and, um, and, and the outdoors as being a profound teacher as millions of spiritual practitioners from all over the world have gone to the woods, to the forest, to the mountains, to the caves, to the desert, um, uh, to, you know, to discover, you know, to live you know, closer to life and truth. And, and so it's, it's a bit like nature doesn't lie. There's a certain truthfulness in nature, there's a certain realness, a certain integrity when we go outside into nature, and we'll explore this today, uh, nature isn't busy self-referencing. We're, we self-reference and we reference each other through our sense of self. <clears throat> we go outside, as far as we know, nature isn't self-referencing. The, the, the oak trees are not strutting their oak tree stuff saying how cool they are or how great and big they are, or small, or they're just being trees, and grasses are grassing, and leaves are leaving, and flowers are flowering. And there's a certain kind of organic truthfulness to that. I mean, we can, we can make a self, we can self-nature, we can make it into a thing and an object, which we've sadly done as a species, to great detriment. <coughs> but when we go outside, especially when we're on our own, and we're immersed in a natural landscape, and if we get, allow our mind to get quiet enough, we can, um, that sense of non-self-referencing rubs off. We start to be a little less self-preoccupied, a little less caught up in our own drama, our own story. There's no one to compare ourselves better, less than, equal. That's the habit of conceit softens. And there are many moments where we can be outside and we feel a sense of space or a sense of peacefulness or a sense of ease. And partly that's coming just because of you know, the, the ions and the, and, and the landscape. Partly it's become, because our sense of self is softening, is quietening, is dissolving. Sometimes we can feel the sense of our skin boundary 
dissolving. We feel more connected. We feel more a sense of kinship or openness. And then somebody comes down the trail, or maybe you hear a hunter in the woods, or um, the bell goes and you've got to be back to meditation. You're like, oh. Suddenly the sense of self slaps back. And we feel constricted, tight, small, separate, usually slightly anxious. And then we realize we wasn't a bell, it was just car horn, and we go back to relaxing, softening. And so we see how, let's see if I can find a story, there's a story I wrote about this in the book, uh, my new book. Um, we see how the sense of self is like an accordion. At times it's very tight, constricted, me, my stuff, my problems, my drama, and other times, like when we wake up first thing in the morning and we're not quite sure who we are, we're just like, ah. Oh. Ah. Oh shit, I'm late for work. Right? It's a very different experience, right? We go from that to this. Let me see if I can find this. Give me a moment. And then we'll do some practice outside. So as you're sitting listening to this, notice what's happening around your own sense of identity, your own sense of self. Are you feeling like protest, resistance to what I'm saying? Is there some sense of confusion or resistance? You know, generally we're very attached to our sense of selves. So we're kind of reluctant to give them up. So uh, I'll, I'll read a little of this story. So I'm on a wilderness retreat. One morning during the retreat, after a cold night camping in uneven ground, I wake up having slept badly. I feel a bit irritable and tired, and I notice grumpy Mark is present. He tends to look at the world somewhat negatively. From the perspective of that self, the day's activities look hard, look, look, look like hard work. Then I'll have a strong cup of black tea, my my morning ritual, and it helps me wake up and brighten my mind. Between the caffeine and splashing my face with cold water, I feel brighter, more positive. In the short period of time it takes to drink some tea, grumpy Mark vacates, and I feel excited about spending the day outdoors. I start to look around at the natural beauty all around me and feel rejuvenated and happy. This buoyant sense of self, however, doesn't last long. I remember a disagreement I had with a teaching colleague the night before, who criticized my course structure and teaching style, and now uh, reactivity surfaces. I'm angry about being judged. I feel a little hurt. Righteous personality emerges, filled with righteous indignation, and this sense of self gets swept away in a flurry of planning how to rebut my colleague. Usually, after a few minutes, I recognize this and laugh at myself. Oh, look, the mindfulness teacher planning revenge. And now a wiser self takes the place of the vengeful one, and I adopt a different view of my colleague. He is, in fact, an old friend whom I appreciate, uh, who I know appreciates me and only has my best interests at heart. Seeking further relief from this confining straitjacket of anger, I decide to hike to a nearby meadow, a beautiful landscape of emerald grasses, 
Soft dawn light illuminates the ponderosa trees that flank the meadow. I breathe in the fresh mountain air and feel a moment of heartfelt gratitude for being in this magical place, far from the bustle of urban life. I'm transported into an expansive sense of self that feels love and appreciation for nature and its beauty. In that expansion, I feel the rigidness of the angry one fully dissolve. I then sit at the foot of an old Douglas fir tree and meditate. As I abide in that contemplative state, my mind quiets, my heart opens. I have a sense of merging with the landscape. In that quietude, Mark, as a sense of self, becomes hazy. There's no more self-talk, no more feeling separate, just a flow of experience. There's a visceral sense of being one with the living forest. This is witnessed effortlessly in awareness. The familiar sense of self dissolves, leaving just a quiet, awake presence. Then I'm jarred out of this tranquil, serene place by the sound of the retreat bell, summoning everyone in the meditation circle to the campfire. I'm jolted out of this sense of connection, where all sense of me, my life, my little separate part of the universe has disappeared, with no self to be seen. Rapidly, teacher Mark emerges. The self is concerned about getting to the meditation on time, busy planning what kind of practice to lead that morning. This sense of self was more dense and opaque in comparison to the state where all self-referencing disappears. And on it goes. <laughs> you know, that's life, right? And that's just before breakfast. <laughs> so, um, <clears throat> so one of the things I want us to pay attention to today is this process, this changing nature of self. Right? To not get into a sort of painful and unsatisfying debate about whether the sense of self exists or not exists, pay attention to its changing nature. Like right now, if you would sense into your sense of self, how are you experiencing yourself? Do you feel, you know, who knows how you feel? Engaged? Interested? Are you bored and sleepy? Restless? Maybe the debating self is there, like challenging, like not wondering, wondering if this is all true or useful or not, or... Um, maybe there's a, there's a sense of inspiration. You feel inspired and, and feeling faith, and that 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 self is present. And know that whatever state you're in will change probably within half an hour, which is one of the liberating things that comes from knowing impermanence. Is that whatever state I'm in, whatever identity, however big or small, it's going to change. Don't take it too seriously. Don't cling to it. It's going to move. That the freedom is in, know, in the knowing of that. So, we're going to do some walking practice right now. And um, we're going to go outside in this beautiful day. Uh, this patio here, and the front patio, and the road here. Walk, little paths around the building. Um, there's a lovely meadow just beyond the parking lot over there. Um, and then you can walk up or down the this road, but don't go beyond the it's a big wooden gate further up the road. There's the entrance to the retreat center, and I'm pretty sure there's probably a silent retreat happening, so we ask you not to go beyond that gate, but all the ground's here. Um, and um, there's two ways to do, well, there's many ways to do walking practice. In this tradition, we tend to walk up and down. We just find a place, you know, maybe as long as a stage or as wide as this room, and we just walk up and down. And the point of the 
practice is we're not we're not going anywhere. We're not going for a hike. Right? You might want to go for a hike at lunchtime, but right now we're doing walking meditation where you're simply walking up and down, present to your physical experience, uh, and noticing the changing nature of your experience, noticing how all different sensations come and go, feelings, thoughts, perceptions. Let yourself be open to your sensory experience and noticing sounds, noticing smells, noticing sensations, sights. And just pay attention to both the changing nature of your experience, particularly in your body, and also the, the, the changing nature of self. Maybe you walk outside and it's like, ah, oh, outside, fresh air, I love being outdoors, and there's a sense of the happy one shows up, the bright one, the one that feels you know, love of the outdoors, and you feel rejuvenated and happy to be outside, and you're walking up and down with a sense of quiet joy and ease um, you know and then you're maybe you're walking by some trees or by some of these beautiful grasses and you're feeling a sense of love and, and deep connection with nature and you just a sense of the loving the loving one the, the dissolved sense of self starts to emerge and there's just you know times we can be walking and there's no one walking walking is happening by itself but nature is happening by itself and um, you know, and that may happen, or you know, maybe you're walking and, and suddenly a whole painful memory comes. Maybe you're going through a very difficult time in your life, in transition, or in a relationship, or with your health, and that that really grips you. And and so, and if, and if you really get gripped, it's good to pause and just take a moment to feel and notice that experience, and notice that identity. Oh, the, oh, here the fearful one has come, or the anxious one, or the the depressed one, or the sad one is here, and we and we feel that momentary identity, which might feel quite familiar. Notice that we continue walking, and notice how everything is impermanent. How that too, when those thoughts, feelings pass, and we attune to our physical present moment experience, that 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 fades, and suddenly we're back. Oh, spirit rock and. Oh, you know, it's actually not too bleak. It's okay. Uh, actually, you know, there's spring here. It's beautiful. Okay, I'm sad, but I can also notice there's joy here. And I like that. So just present to the changing nature, and particularly any sense of identity, self referencing, noticing the comparing mind, someone's walking really slow and like they look really spiritual and you think, oh, I should walk slower, looks really good. Okay, I'll do that for a while. It's my friend, uh, my friend James Barris, he, was on a, he, has a, he has a note to himself when he's walking, when he's doing really slow walking and the note to himself is looking good, looking good, <laughs> looking good, like looking really spiritual. Okay, I hope people are noticing Okay, all right. There's a sense of inflation, like, oh, I'm somebody, I'm special, right? We like that special, inflated quality of self. And then we miss our step and we trip a little, like, oh no, did anybody notice? The embarrassed self takes over. Oh no, you know, I lost my cool, I lost my meditation mindful edge, you know. 
Mr. Mindfulness, Mrs. Mindfulness. You know, and on it goes. So we'll do that for a half, half an hour. We'll ring a bell just after 11.30. And we'll come back. Um, any questions about that? Uh, I'd suggest keeping your eyes sort of on the downward side. And if something captures your attention, give it your full attention. Stop walking and then resume your walking. I'll stay behind um, if there's any questions, but we'll, I'll take questions about your experience and about what I've said this morning uh, after the walking. I was thinking, um, you know, there's probably, I don't know how many people here today, 50, 60 people. Um, how many selves are there, are there here today? <laughs> or how many selves have we walked through today? You know, I mean, maybe quite a few already. Maybe the room's feeling crowded with all these selves. <laughs> or none. Right, that's the other important the other side of it. So, uh, any? Uh, let's maybe um, we'll pass a microphone. Do we have mic runners? Who's a mic runner? So, um, comments, questions, either about your sitting meditation, your um, walking practice, or anything that's coming up here uh, in the, the day long so far. Please, so question here. Please, yeah. While I wrestle with this microphone thing. To my mouth, okay. Um, at least outside, I always appreciate the sense of humility that I feel. Mm, nice. um, and obviously, it's metaphorical. You know, we're so tiny in this immense mm. space. Mm-hmm. But then, even pausing, and there was this, this um, bush with a bunch of bees around. And I was kind of observing how they all kind of are doing their thing within their little mini community. You know, and then you can look over at the cluster of trees. And from afar, there's nothing moving. But then you start to look at each individual one, and they're all kind of blowing a little bit. So in each of these little microcosms, there's something going on. Mm-hmm. And then I just kind of smiled, thinking, wow. And then in this microcosm, you know, in this mm-hmm. piece, all the activity. So... Um, it's just kind of a sense of humility I always appreciate. Mm, yeah, beautiful. Yeah, you remind me of um, the book, "The Secret Life of Trees" or "The Hidden Life of Trees." Um, you know where you know we, we look at a tree and we go, "Oh, it's a, it's a separate oak tree standing in a field," but you know all tr- trees survive through interconnection, sharing root structure, sharing nutrients, sharing warning signals. Um, in the same way, you know, like, you know, the think of ant colonies and bee colonies are very interesting where the, there's a sense of the collective whole. And, um, and then it also made me think about um, our bodies, you know, our, our microbiome. You know, uh, there are more cells that, uh, I'm not sure how to say it, but um, are not part of us that are part of us, bacteria, viruses, um, particularly in the gut. Uh, There's 1.3 trillion non-human cells and we have a trillion cells, something like that. So there's more of us, more of them than us, whatever (laughs) them is. (laughs) As in, even this, 
that we cherish so much that this isn't me and you know, I can move it, it seems like me and yet we're, we're also host to this huge you know, host of organisms that, that help us survive. Clearly not me, but yet part of this related, interrelated fabric. Yeah, please. As I, was, as I was walking, I was noticing that nature makes me feel less of myself. Like, I feel like I'm part of this amazing, wonderful universe around me. Mm. And it's an amazing, freeing, awesome feeling. Mm-hmm. But as I came closer to other people and as other people came closer to me, I would find that that eroded a little bit. So mm-hmm. it started to make me wonder how much of our self is a construct because of social situations. Yes, yes, definitely. That. Most of it, you know, most of our, most, but a lot of our, our, you know, our sense of self, identity is in relationship. You know, we're social creatures and we're, you know, in, in family and community. And, um, and so we're often dancing, playing off each other in reference to each other, comparing with each other. Um, and, um, yeah, I think there's something very profound about when we go outside and we feel a different kind of connection and less self-oriented, you know, more spacious, more relaxed, more expansive. I think it, it's just a, it's a really important reminder for us. And, and of course, you know, now I think what's the, the latest data? Eighty percent of Americans live in the city. Um, which is, you know, and the first time in history in the last, I think we crossed that threshold in the last few years, more people in the world now live in cities than in, in, in the country. And therefore we live in buildings and houses, cars and offices. And, um, and so we, we have less and less reference point for something bigger than ourselves, whether it's trees, forests, night sky. Um, and, and then with social media, you know, um, which is, you know, I think sort of interesting giving this talk in these times because, you know, technology, phones particularly, social media particularly, reinforce the sense of self multiple times, you know, tenfold probably, you know. Um, you know, it's barely a, well, certainly not a day goes by where I, you know, don't see someone taking a selfie, you know, whether it's, you know, next to a Van Gogh painting or a tree. I have this amazing palm tree out my house, side of my house in Sausalito, and, and people always stop and take photos and selfies, and it's fine. Why not? You know, it's not a bad thing to do. But it just keeps reinforcing, here I am, here's my life, here's my Instagram life, my perfect, you know, Snapchat world, whatever. Um, and yeah, so our sense of self is now not just private, it's broadcast <laughs> and reinforced and we, and then it, you know, our sense of value goes up and down with the amount of likes and shares and, you know, retweets or whatever it is we're into. And, um, all of that's sort of alienating really, you know, and uh, when we go into nature, it's, we, we, we can find a sense of deeper, older sense of connection. Yeah, thanks. So a hand here, and then we'll get to a hand there, and then a hand at the back. So if you want to, this lady in the pink will be. Yeah. 
Well, as I was walking, I heard the woodpeckers, mm. you know, going. And uh, then, then, of course, as my way, I started thinking, that woodpecker made a deliberate choice to go to that tree and peck at that tree. Does that mean that he decided that I am going to do this? Or how do you have a deliberate action without a sense of the self? Yeah. Yeah. Well, so this is the one of the nutty, the nutty questions that comes up with this topic, right? Where, where, where's the sense of, if there's no self, where's, this, where's the agency? Where's intention? Where's choice? Where's volition? You know, and, and, and volition and intention is a really key part of Buddhist practice, as you know. Um, and um, and there's sort of an <laughs> it's sort of an age-old debate. And um, I remember I was studying once with um, Ramesh Balsakar in Bombay, who is a student of Nisangadatta Maharaj, great great Indian saint. And um, we had this two-week dialogue. He, he's arguing about the the whether whether life is predestined, which is, is, is the worldview from the Hindu perspective, or dependently arising from the Buddhist perspective, how everything's arising out of conditions. And, uh, of course, we didn't actually resolve anything. We just debated for two weeks. <laughs> um, but I'm sure I was right. Um, uh, and so, and again, and the same with, with choice and, and selflessness, we can have a similar circular debate around um, for instance I'm thirsty and wanting a sip of green tea so I will lift my cup and take a drink and it seems like that's me doing it my cup, my tea, my movement, my thought, my execution my action um, and or that's one that's one that's a sort of very sort of natural um everyday experience you know we, we're thirsty we drink we're hungry we eat something we're itchy we scratch um, and and so that does give this sense of um, that sense of agency gives rise to a sense of well there must be there's, there's clearly I'm doing this so there's so I exist right and um, but if we if we actually peel it back to um, for example uh if we're looking at neurologically in the brain, often you know, it's, it's really interesting research. Um, uh, there would probably be synapses firing in the brain prior to my thinking, "I'm thirsty and I'm going to lift this cup." So often, the the the, the net result of a whole series of brain processes results in a thought a cognition, a perception, an action prior to our conscious knowing of that experience. So which begs the question, so where does that arise from? Like, is that woodpecker sitting around going, hmm, oak, birch, oak, uh, birch. Uh, Or is it just moving through instinct, through perceptual processes, through its sophisticated way of understanding you know it's it's food chain and um so um you know f- from the relative perspective it does seem like we have choice all the time 
and we can bring awareness to choice and make our choices wiser, more skillful, you know, which is so much part of Buddhist ethics. Um, and at the same time, we can, if, we, if we're looking at the complex matrix of conditions that give rise to any, any and every moment, that choice, which, seem, which seems to be, I'm making the choice to do this, not that, is arising out of, you know, 14 billion years of evolution. Of all of my conditioning, my history, my, my, my learning, my studies, my social milieu, my physical form. And, um, and so, so, and this is one of the, and the things about this particular topic, is there's a certain amount of paradox to it. We both clearly exist as a separate individual with our history and a personality and life and story, which is very separate, my, my life story is separate, very different than everybody else's here to some degree. And at the same time, uh, it's a bit like, you know, like, you know, look at all these beautiful yellow golden flowers that are outside, right, that you know, slightly rotate towards the sun, right? They're all individual, all unique, and yet all coming out of the same ground, the same, just like grasses, share the same root structure, right? Is the flower, it's both separate, it's both distinct and intimately connected with the ground and, you know, food, soil, microorganisms, and even that it's, it's seeming individual movement towards the sun is also happening with every other flower in that bed of grass. Right? So there's both distinct, distinction and commonality. There's both agency, but it's also rising out of conditioning. So is so can one say one's really acting independently or just acting out one's conditioning? It's uh, you know so we're holding paradox as part of this discussion. Um, so hand over there. So my, one of my teachers, Christopher Titmus, when I was really sort of in the midst of exploring this on long retreats, um, uh, his, his, one of his lines that I remember very well, he said, freedom or life gives, uh, um, um, allows self and not self to be. Right? That both have their own, both uh, have their own place, right? We clearly have a sense of self, experience of a self, separate, and not self is also equally true, perhaps more true. But um, between the two, our life flows. Most of the time, we feel very self-identified as a me, as a person, as a personality with a history and a biology. And at other times, that sense of self is completely dissolved and absent, like in deep sleep like in deep meditation, like in unity experiences. And um, so part of Dharma practice is having a wide lens of attention or awareness to hold these seeming paradoxes in, in life and experience. Please. Uh, hi, yeah, I, I really like what you just said because, um, you know, I'm introduced to not self, and it's like immediately self bad, you know. Self bad, right? That is is uh, very useful. 
Uh, I just wanted to, I was kind of alarmed at my experience out there in the sense that um, I, was, I, was, I was rushing. I was rushing. I'm always rushing, mm. you know, and it, it's like I have this kind of uh, perfection Nazi in my head that is always, you know, I have to do everything right, everything right. Oh, I'm late. Oh, I'm not, you know, da, 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 da. And, and I, um, it's conditioning. It's, it's my personal conditioning and stuff, but I, I feel like I don't have choice over it, you know, mm -hmm. except, but, and this was great in the practice to just be aware of it. Oh, it's the Nazi. Oh, mm. I'm rushing, you know, mm. and, uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I look forward to the time when that's more of a knee-jerk response because um, certainly in our society and certainly with my personality and whatnot, you know, this, this, uh, this uh, being driven is, is really hard to overcome. And I just, I just, I was so aware of it that I had to, felt like I needed to speak about it. Yeah, no, I'm glad you did. You know, and it comes back to, to the earlier question about... Um, who's in control, right? You know, we're often driven by our conditioning, our habits, our views. Um, in this case, time scarcity um, or whatever the driver is that you call the, you know, the harsh voice that's telling you to rush and to be perfect. And, um, and you know, we, we, whoever the we is, like to think we're in control. <laughs> and here we are mostly acting out our conditioning. right? In your case, rushing, being perfect, doing it right, doing it better. Um, and so we see how painful those identities are. Right? The one who needs to be right. The one who needs to rush. The one who can't settle in an ordinary activity. Right? It's painful. And so that's why we shine the light of awareness on these patterns because um, it's only in the seeing of them that we can uh, become less engaged, less, more disengaged from them and have more space and have choicefulness around, oh, there's that pattern, there's that voice and I'm just going to be late. I'm going to just cruise into that meditation hall 10 minutes late <laughs> And so what? Who cares? You know, um, that's freedom. You know, when we when we're not buying, not driven by these, you know, you could say these identities, these 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 selves that live within us, right? You know, the, the judge, the critic, the driver, the, you know, all the different kinds of identities. Yeah, good. Please, this hand here. Sorry. So um, I found that meditation both powerful and emotional mm. and wonder if other people did as well. And mm. to your point, though, about the shifting tides of selves, I feel a lightness now that I didn't mm. 20 minutes ago, which is mm. just interesting. And what came up for me in reflection is um, you were, I think you spoke this morning about this duality of self and other. Mm -hmm. What was coming up was kind of the internal duality of selves and how much those are rooted in, in childhood experiences. Mm -hmm. The language that was surfacing for me was kind of like victim, savior. Mm -hmm. And just this recognition that even when we transcend those selves as adults and we create new patterns, there's just these echoes of them. Mm -hmm. And it's so easy to play out mm -hmm. that kind of internal 
duality. Um, and right. so it was just really helpful, emotional, but also really helpful to like notice that, notice the current manifestations of that, right. if you will. Right. And to see how it's always moving. Those selves, those voices, those tendencies, right? That just, right? The awareness has the capacity to hold it all with, with kindness and with, with wisdom. And just, oh, look at it. Now, 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 now the worried one's taken over, or now the sad one's taken over, or now the one who feels deficient in relationship to everybody, or now the grandiose one's here, because I'm so good at this, you know, and blah, you know, and just, oh, right. And as long as we don't buy that story or buy that press release and, and take birth in that, then it's just more more selves, you know, just ceaselessly coming and going. Not a problem. They're just, oh, now the happy one's here. Now the, the judgy one's here. Now, you know, the confused one's here. Okay, and so we can hold it with, you know, it's like we have this whole kindergarten inside that, you know, jostling for attention, you know. What about me? What about me? I'm special. What about me? <laughs> so there's a hand uh, over here and over here. What would you like to do? Um, uh, uh, well, you'll have your hand up now, so okay. Anna. And then this chap at the back with the orange shirt. Are you first, Anna? Me? So in regards of um, what you were saying, um, I understand the concept. And um, we have minds that are very powerful. And, of course, sometimes you have a choice because the mind is not overpowering you. So, in that moment, yes, you have a choice. You go, oh, this is just a story. I'm not going to believe it. I can go back to my breathing and let it pass. But other times, the mind is so powerful that makes you believe stories, makes you believe realities, and I think meditation is good because bring that awareness, help you help you to clear the mind and have some equanimity. And, um, but the way that, you know, I feel it is, is a life process that because we were born with a mind, like that little bird that is choosing the tree, which tree is going to go. Maybe it's instinct, like you were saying, surviving. Maybe the bird that is on the roof just singing and being so gracious and being so happy about the morning sun and the breeze doesn't have a mind. And sometimes we can, you know, go to those places being in unity like that little bird singing but other times 
the mind, you know, empowers us, like, in a negative way. Mostly. Mostly in the mind is negative. I don't know about that, but in here. But, says, I don't know. Yeah, mostly. Hmm. Of course, we have, you know, but how you were saying that mind, you know, the judgment and... Yeah, can be for sure, very uh-huh. negatively. Or, you know, we have, certainly have a negativity bias. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you what you're saying, what you're saying, I understand, you know, all what you're saying in a, in a very conceptual, you know, conceptual um, concepts, like just concepts. And it's good to have them because it's like a, okay, um, a map, like you can follow, and then you go, okay, yes, there are, you know, there are choices. But at the same time, you know, I feel like it's not like that, it's not that easy. Well, today, you know, or at this moment, this is happening and, you know, um, I'm always in a hurry and today I'm just, you know, going to let it be and just going to be late. So, you know, I appreciate, you know, all your teachings. But I think, it, like you were saying, one day you have one kind of meditation, another day you have another kind of meditation. And, you know, one, you know, one day you can have, you can make choices with things that are happening and maybe the other day is not working Mm-hmm. As beautifully, mm-hmm. yeah. No, it varies for sure. The circumstances. It also uh, depends on our practice, right? It takes practice, it takes training. Right? We don't just disengage and free ourselves from our painful mind states and habits and thoughts easily, right? So it takes a long time. It's a lot of work, and some mental states and identities and. Self-views are really strong, you know, especially you know, if they've been planted in, in childhood. And, you know, and um, yeah, I, I'm definitely not saying this is easy. It's work, yeah, yeah. And uh, humbling, and, and um, that's why we also need compassion, because it's painful. You know, to be caught in any identity, any identity is limited. However inflated, grandiose it is, it's a, it's, an, it's, a rest, it's a restriction of our being which is ultimately free and spacious. And um, so wherever we take birth, whatever identity, um, it's limited. And the more that we believe that identity is who we are, we're, we're not seeing the truth. Yeah. Okay, last comment here, please. Is this on? I don't... Yeah, it's on, yeah. Oh, good. Uh, yeah, I was thinking as I was walking around um, about looking at the reasons why we are so addicted to the familiar, what you describe, you know, ruminating and status quo, and whether that's helpful to, you know, have awareness of, for example having a self is functional in society, boundary setting and 
living in a in normal everyday life and the experience of going beyond the self and experiencing let's say the void or nothing can be daunting and frightening and so there is you know some degree of resistance to that so having a self might also have a uh, a defensive identification can be a defense against going to this other sure. way of experiencing our our ourself mm-hmm. so i'm just suggesting you know and then the other point is that you know you mentioned neurophysiology and that perhaps our brains are just designed this way out of some kind of evolutionary survival to plan and scheme and be cautious and yeah, think about sure. there's definitely a role with all def- these things out of a out of a programming in our yeah. brain structure there's definitely a role for so, but just saying but just the sense aware of, self. of all this challenge in your work is that helpful to uh, to also face that and meditate on that and well so the tradition says for 2500 years not that you need to believe that but um, I would suggest that you pay attention to where the you know views and ideas and identifications with certain identities certain ways you see yourself to see whether those are um, helpful or not whether they create well-being or not so um, yeah you know as as we grow as 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 we develop an identity as a kid you know it's necessary it's healthy to have sense of self and boundaries and um, a healthy self-regard and all that um, and uh, it also has its limitation. There's a psychologist who used to say, he doesn't say it anymore, but he used to say, um, uh, you need a healthy self before you can let go of one. And you need a healthy ego structure before you can dissolve the ego structure. Because if you do that prior to having a healthy ego structure, you tend to uh, create mental imbalance. Um, he doesn't quite advocate that that point of view exactly anymore, but it's. But I think there's something to it that we need a healthy sense of self before we can see that the sense of self we've created is ultimately a construct, ultimately not who we are, and there's something much deeper, vaster, profound, peaceful than the limited identity that we so busy try to protect, defend, prop up, promulgate on social media. And um, uh, yeah, so there's deeper well-being to be had by going deeper than that identity structure, um, which is ultimately uh, somewhat constructed. This is from Wes Niska, who's a teacher here. So he's talking about personality, but personality is one, you could say one, way of talking about the the self-identity. One suggestion is to regard your personality as a pet. 
It follows you around anyway, so give it a name and make friends with it. Keep it on a leash when you need to and let it run free when you feel that it's appropriate. Train it as well as you can and then accept its idiosyncrasies, but always remember that your pet is not you. Your pet has its own life and just happens to be in intimate relationship with you, whoever you may be hiding there behind your personality. So, you know, it's kind of like that, you know. Personality is very much part of who we are. It's how people know us. It's often how we know ourselves. But are we really our personality? Right? It's, a, it's a facet of who we are. But it's not ultimately who we are. So, so let's sit together. We'll have another meditation before lunch. So I'm going to lead us in a elements meditation, which is a one body contemplation practice. The Buddha taught in the Satipatthana Sutta, where we're sensing ourselves, sensing our elemental nature, earth, water, fire, air, space, as a way of seeing that our body is just part of this elemental process of life, the earth, not separate. So beginning by sensing your body, sensing yourself as part of the earth's surface. We're part of the earth's moving surface, just like every other mammal, animal, creature. We come from the earth. We eat the earth element through plants, animals. We excrete the earth and we go back to the earth. The earth element we can experience all around us the hills, the mountains, the rocks, the earth under our feet, trees, the density of matter, heaviness, solidity, weight. 
So we experience the earth element inside as hardness, as density, as weight and heaviness, feeling the earth element in our bones, bones in our feet, our sit bones, our legs, our skull, our jaw, our teeth, hands, flesh, earth element, earth element in our bodies, hard, dense, heavy, same as the earth element outside, not separate. So feeling this body as the earth, earth sitting on the earth. Feeling the hardness, density, the bones, weight of muscles, (coughs) nails, teeth, jaw, earth element, connected to all of the earth element around us. element, the water in the oceans, rivers, lakes, clouds, rain, snow, (coughs) same as the water element in the body, blood, saline coursing through our veins, tears in our eyes, the wetness in our mouth, the GI tract. We experience the water element as wetness, as fluidity, moisture on the skin. Moisture in the mouth, the eyes, fluidity in our joints. We drink the water element. We become part of the hydrological cycle. We excrete the water element. Water element inside, water element outside. Same element. We're mostly water, skin-bound ocean. directly this water element
experiencing the water element as fluidity, as wetness, moisture, sweat. inside, water element outside, same element. Next we feel the fire element, fire of the sun, the heat, sunlight, warmth in our bellies, the energy that we absorb from sunlight, from metabolizing plants, animals, food, metabolizing the sunlight stored in plants. So feeling the warmth in your belly Warmth and the coolness of the body. This warmth stays with us until we die. This warmth is intimately connected. The fire of the sun, the fire of the Big Bang. Energy alive within us. Fire element. Know it directly. as warmth, as heat, as I'm aware of the air element, the air elements that we swim in that we all partake of, same air, molecules that have been around for thousands of years, breathing in oxygen, inhaling oxygen released from trees, grasses, plankton, Releasing carbon dioxide, reabsorbed by the same photosynthesizing life. Each inhale, each inhale, exhale connects us with all breathing beings, all photosynthesizing beings. Air element inside. Air element outside, same element, not separate. Inhale, connecting us with the air, with the wind element. Each exhale, connecting us with the air element. 
connecting us with each other, with all life. Lastly, this space element, space all around us, space inside us, space in the mind. We're mostly space, 99.999% space. Space inside, space outside, same element. Space allows for all the elements to be, earth, water, fire, air, all coming and going in this field of space. Knowing how this space is pervaded with consciousness, with awareness. Inside, outside. And these remaining few minutes just attending to this flow of elements, earth and solidity, water and fluidity, air, movement, Connection, fire, warmth, and space.
And as we bring this meditation to a close, just noticing how sensing and reflecting on these elements, how they may shift your perspective on self or identity of who we take ourselves to be. As one layer of our experience is simply this changing, moving flow of elements. So um, we're going to break for lunch. Um, so feel free to eat outside. It's a beautiful day. There's some nice picnic tables down in the meadow there, or out on the courtyard, or wherever you like in, indoors if you want shade. Um, so it's uh, we'll come back um, one forty-five. So it's 12.30 now, so we have a little over an hour for lunch. And um, I'm going to suggest that we uh, stay in silence and um, just continue the reflection. So eating is actually a really interesting place to, to also continue this reflection around self and identity. You know, we, have a, we often have various... Um, views, ideas, self-perceptions, identity around food, around weight, around body image, and it can be quite a charged area. Um, but we can also look at the, you know, the elemental nature of food, right? We tend to move through life thinking we're sort of this bubble, like we go for a walk in the forest and I'm walking through the forest, but I've got nothing to do with the forest except I'm observing it, right? But for every creature in that forest, in that moment, you are part of the living, breathing, walking forest. That you also happen to be a predator in, in, from most beings' perspective. Right? In the same way we eat food, we often, even though we sort of know intellectually, yeah, it's good to eat you know, you know, fruits and vegetables and get your vitamins. And we sort of tend to, th- it, it, it's hard to imagine this sandwich is going to become my muscles, you know, or my belly, most likely, uh, or whatever, you know. Like, then this, this fruit is going gonna, is gonna to nourish my blood, you know, or, you know, vitalize my brain cells. Like, it's, it's actually real. It's not a nice idea. It's like real. This food becomes, it's water, right? We tend to think we drink water, we piss it out, and it's got nothing really to do with me. But this is, this is, this is becoming our blood and our cells, our tissues, our tears, right? Literally. It's wild, right? And this water is, you know, mostly uh, uh, Sierra Nevada snowmelt, right? And from the Eel River and from the reservoirs here and Mount Tam, like we're drinking Mount Tam Reservoir, like it's a beautiful thing. We're drinking that rain from this amazing wild storms this winter. We, we are walking rain, you know, we're walking Mount Tam Lake if you live in Marin. If you live in San Francisco, you're Sierra Snowmelt sitting here, right? What would it be like if we saw each other as that identity, you know, all connected, 
you know, which we are. It's true. It sounds romantic, but it's also real. <laughs> so as you're eating, reflecting on this, again, the selfless process. We eat food, becomes part of who we are, happens pretty magically by itself. You don't have to tell your stomach, like, okay, now, now digest, okay, now work on it, work on it, liver, 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 okay, translate it into blood, you know. No, just does it. Amazing, mysterious, wild, beautiful. So, um, so bring a lot of awareness to that, that dimension of your food. Um, and uh, just be mindful that the bigger the lunch, the sleeper the afternoon. <laughs> so if you want to be sleepy, that's fine. Just, you know, but if you want to stay awake, which you probably do, then light lunch ideally or snack a little through the day rather than one big you know, sandwich or whatever. Um, so uh, what else? So we'll keep this, so we'll be in silence. Um, and then feel free to either come in here, meditate after lunch, or come in here and rest if you need to lie down. I like to, I like to nap after lunch. It helps the energy in the afternoon. Some of you might want to walk or hike or just meditate outside. It's beautiful to sit under the trees. Um, there's trails here, walking up the hills. And there's a trail through the meadow, back through, up that hill. Just be mindful of ticks. We, are, we do have ticks here. It is tick season. Um, when you come back from being outside, please brush off your pants. Your, your, just check yourself, especially if you've got barefoot. Um,
So welcome back. <clears throat> Hope you enjoyed this beautiful day. So a lot of you out hiking, which is happy to see. I think, especially on the residential retreats here, I think people as much come here for the nature as for the Dharma and the retreats. So for me, nature is Dharma. And um, <clears throat> so can teach us so much, particularly around change and identity and As my friend Wes liked to say, I'm an earthling. <laughs> right. Or he comments about, he's always amused when the sign outside the restaurant says, uh, no animals allowed, but it's full of humans. They just walk right past the sign. <laughs> Which begs the question, what do we identify with? Right. What do we identify with? So I was just having lunch with the team that's teaching up the hill, and they're all ardent Warriors fans. <laughs> In fact, one of the managers, Ramona, had this beautiful new shawl, blue with golden stripes, and the little Warriors logo. <laughs> it was like the the most interesting meditation shawl I've ever seen. Um, and and yet there was also uh, Dawn, who's from, uh, she's from Quebec, or somewhere up there, not Quebec, um, somewhere up there, Ontario. And she's like, no, I'm a Raptors fan. Like, I don't care about <laughs> basketball, but, you know, I'm, you know, I'm Canadian and uh, I'm rooting for my team, you know, we don't win very much. <laughs> so, um, you know, so it's just interesting to see, we, you know, we have so many identities, right? So if you think about, if you take yourself back to childhood <clears throat> and the different identities that you've walked through, Right? Especially as kids, we get very loyal right, to certain things, right? certain like maybe a sports team or a, a clan or a you know, little clique of whatever you were involved with. Right? So I grew up in, in the northern England, and uh, so I have the, the sad fate of being a Newcastle United football supporter, which is a soccer team, usually pretty useless. And um, never have enough money, and don't win much. And um, but I was, a new, I still am. I still, I still watch the games. I haven't lived there since God knows years and years and years. But I still, I feel that loyalty, you know. And I, I called my dad. Like I had to get on early last hour surprise. And I was like, <laughs> I wish I could just support another team, but I can't. Like I can't, you know. It's it's like you have these identities, right? So, um, so one of those for me was was sports. I, I was I, when I moved to London, I got into punks. I was a punk. I was very identified with the punk. I had a white mohawk, if you can imagine, <laughs> big earrings, makeup. I made my own clothes, um, and I was an anarchist. That was part of my identity. Black, you know, anti-establishment. Um, uh, and then I became a Buddhist. Ooh, that was a painful identity. <laughs> and now I'm, I'm a clod card-carrying Buddhist and I let my family know that I was a Buddhist and how righteous and good I was and how, how unright they were for whatever they were into 
And that was very painful, right? With this, that phrase, you know, my family loves me when I'm a Buddha, but doesn't like me when I'm a Buddhist, right? As in, you know, proselytizing, evangelizing, judging, you know, you're not, you know, they're not meditating, they're not enlightened enough, you know. So, um, fortunately, I let go of that phase of identifying with that label of being a Buddhist, even though I'm a teacher in the Buddhist tradition. Um, and then I went to Asia and then to the States. And, um, and then being in the States, I became much more proud of my English identity. <laughs> when I was in England, I was just busy, you know, railing against the monarchy and the establishment and the classism and the racism and the you know horrible you know hor- you know wretched colonial history that they they've been privy that they've you know promulgated um <clears throat> but now I'm in America and I you know I'm more attached to being English even though I'm losing my accent and that's an identity right of one's one's roots one's culture one's country um and I'm also working class I have a working class identity even though I'm from all extents and purposes a visibly middle class um but my roots and my identification is with working class culture and 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 the various you know, beautiful things about that in, in English culture. Um, and then I started writing books, and now I'm a writer, right? That could be an identity, right? I don't think of myself as a writer, but I have written three books that so that would all, you know, the one would assume that at this point I can <laughs> say that I'm to some degree a writer. Uh, or now I'm a teacher, so I've got a teacher identity. Um, which is tremendously suffering if you really believe that you're a teacher once you're off the podium. Um, and uh, nothing worse than a teacher who doesn't take off the teacher hat and they're you know, busy teaching you all the time and giving all kinds of unwarranted advice, you know, unsolicited advice. Um, and, um, you know... In relationships, I have a relationship identity. When I'm with, talking to my parents, I'm a son... Um, and um, you know, so we go through these identities, right? As you think about the the roles that you've been through as as a child, as a parent, as a student, as a expert, as um, unemployed, as um, you know, um, just innumerable kinds of as many people that are in this room. There are different identities, and some positive and some maybe painful. You know, my class identity in England was painful, that the oppression of the class system was really painful. A little bit more mellow now, but still there. Um, And, um, you know, there's some pleasure and joy that comes from a certain tribal loyalty, like for, you know, supporting the warriors, you know, Go and just go to the game, and you kind of feel like, oh, you're part of a clan, you know. And it's, it's not just my individual identity; there's a sort of tribal identity, right? But we see the danger of that when we get into nation states and tribalism and war and all of that that comes from that kind of identity. Um, so, um, yeah, that would be I mean, that would be an interesting process for you to write out. Okay, where have I? 
you know, what, you know, what identities have I taken through my life, right? And the older we are, we probably live through more identities, right? And as I said, as we get older, we start shedding identities, right? Like being young, or being maybe healthy, or being maybe you used to be a rock climber, but you're not so physically able, or you used to be a long-distance trail runner, or whatever, and that's not, that becomes less part of your identity. My, my father was a, was a really uh, passionate grass hockey player, field hockey player. And I always worried that when he got old, which he is now, that he would, that would be really hard for him to give up, like it was so part of his identity in a very mostly healthy way of being an athlete and team player and all that. And he actually was able to, to transition quite gracefully, but that's not always the case, you know. But we see this when people retire. You've had an identity in, 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 as, as a job, you know, whatever your work is. And, you know, after 30, 40 years, you know, you retire or get the boot or both. Um, and that, that we see the, the tremendous disorganization, disorientation when people retire. And the, uh, particularly for men, um, the rate of death after uh, retirement is, is the, the, uh, in, the, in the year or two post-retirement, the, the death rate goes up significantly. That huge loss in identity and purpose and meaning and focus, which is all, you know, part, can be part of a healthy identity. Um, so, uh, you know, so it's multifaceted, right? There's, there's, so it's almost like this concentric circles. We have these layers of identity, right? Maybe you're your national identity is like a very broad layer. Maybe you don't even think much about being whatever your, ide- whatever your nationality is, American, North American, or whatever, European. Um, and then you might have, you know, some peripheral identities like your sports interests. Maybe that's not peripheral to some of you, especially <laughs> during the playoffs. I shouldn't say that so lightly, but, it, you know. Um, or maybe, you know, you're, you know, you're from a particular you know, college or Ivy League school and that's still part, you know, you still got the thing on your car, you know, you see identities on cars, right, you know, Stanford or, you know, whatever else um, people have as part of that identity. Um, And then we have close identity around our family or around our work and then around, and I'm going to talk a little bit in a minute about how the Buddha understood where we, where we orient to these five ways that we orient around identity in ourselves that are much closer and much more subtle to see and, and, uh, and, and free up. So I'm just curious if you just want to shout out, just like shout out what, what's your, how do you identify? Mother, Warriors fan, you know, Canadian, hmm? scientist. San Francisco native, local. Mm-hmm. New Yorker. New Yorker. Uh huh. Right. So, so geography is important, right? Place. Political affiliation, which you kindly remained uh, discreet around which one. Um, yes, very important, very powerful part of our identity can be. Yeah. What do you eat? Right. Your food choices, lifestyle, vegan, right? Health. Political choice, yeah. 
social worker, right? So your 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 work, yeah. Good for them. <laughs> yeah, well, but but then sadly, that's, that might be true, and probably around here, people are living a healthy lifestyle. But the data is not positive. No, not positive. Yeah, and I think it also might be, you know, I think, you know, I've I just been teaching at this place called the Modern Elder Academy, and we have a very different view. Well, we're moving into a different view of midlife. You know, like I'm 54 next year in England. That was the retirement age, 55. It still is in some European countries. I'm like, retired? It's like inconceivable to me. Um, just what, cause mostly because Dharma teachers don't retire. Um, but, you know, I feel like I'm in my midlife because, you know, statistically we used to die. The average age of death was 45 in 1900. Now it's 78 2100, they're expecting, give a, assuming climate catastrophe doesn't happen, it's going to be in 105 or something crazy. So, and we have this huge midlife where um, the, you know, as you're speaking to that, that um, this phase of life is a very rich phase of life. And many people my age are getting second and third careers and wanting to work in their 60s and 70s or give back or do service or start a non-profit or do all kinds of interesting things. Um, so, but I think traditionally, at least from my experience growing up in England, it was, you know, people would work 30 years a job, retire. And, you know, for many people it was kind of a... Um, it was uh, not a great experience. I think it is very different now. I think there's a lot more long, longer life expectancy, better health outcomes, and just more understanding of engaged, you know, engaged life. And I think the boomers, as they have done with every phase, are, are changing what it means to, to be retired and, and, and what to live an active life. So, but yes, but point taken. Right, right. And you're probably living in a particular kind of milieu. If you're living in the Bay Area, you're probably, it's a very, it's a bubble within a bubble. And, and, and how, you know, how, it's a great bubble, you know, health, you know, access to spirit rock and, 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 you know, healthy lifestyle and food and, you know, culture. And so, um, you know, and hopefully that becomes more of a norm um, for, for many, for sure. Yeah. Yes, please. Identity. Let's, let's, I'm going to hold your question. I just, I want, I just want to hear, I just want to hear a broad spectrum of identities. Like, what, what do you identify? Just one or two words. Lesbian. Lesbian. Right. So sexual orientation. Meditator. Uh, meditator. Right. Our spiritual identity. Right. That can be very important. Yes. Nature lover. Nature lover. Right. What we love. Our connection with something bigger than ourselves. Yoga student. Yoga student. Right. So you're, so you're another kind of spiritual uh, practice and identity. Immigrant. Immigrant. Right, yeah, also very important. Cancer survivor, right. So some of the ways, we, the trials that we move through in life, yeah. What else? Pardon? Pet owner, right, yes. We, 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 our, our ambit of identity also includes either our family, pets, you know, hobbies. Another hand back there, was I? Corporate, right, so your identity is a professional... 
uh, corporate. Right. 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 So branding and marketing would be a way of taking, you know, what we're speaking to as our identity or as our particular personal niche and presenting that in a way that's marketable. And yes. Mother of biracial children, right? Yes, a very uh, complex uh, identity. Yes, yes, yes. Latino immigrant. Latino immigrant. Yes, also beautiful, important identity. So we can see. If we can, yes, there was your hand. Was that hand? Volunteer service work. Volunteer service work. Right. So what we do, what we love, what we care about. Right. So many different ways that we identify. And again, with, with, with these teachings, for the most part, the things in themselves, whatever they are, including the various kind of identities we have, um, the, the key thing is how we relate to it. Right? So um, I may have a Buddhist identity, and that may be very important to me because I love these teachings and practices. But if I'm going to bash you over the head with my Buddhist ideology, not so helpful. Um, Maybe I have an identity as um, uh, as an athlete. But then I get seriously injured and the sport of my choice I can no longer play because of the injury that I have. How I relate to that identity will determine to a significant degree whether I suffer around it. So a friend of mine um, who's a Dharma teacher, he would sit down with his daughter every year, and once a year he would say, sit down, cross from her, and he would say, I am not your father. And she would say, I am not your daughter. As a practice and piercing that the limitation of that identity, yes, of course, he's his, her father and she's his daughter. Yes, conventionally, that is true. And she's also a woman. She's a human being. She's an actress. She's a lover. She's a, um, you, know, you know, whatever she is. She's all of these things, right? And, and yes, of course, we have these roles. But if we confine ourselves or others to those roles we're constricting the natural flow of life in the same way that, um, yeah, if we, can't take, if, we can't, if we can't get out of that role, we're limiting. So I'm not saying you have to sit down with your kids and do that, but it's an interesting experiment um, that there's so much more to us than our identifications and the limitations that that may hold on us. And of course, when we get really attached to those identifications, we can get into a lot of problem. Like where I grew up, watching soccer, it was a violent gladiatorial, gladiatorial experience. Like there were running pitch battles, fights. 
with the other supporters every week. And like we're talking about bloody, violent uh, fights involving hundreds, sometimes thousands of people. And it was like, it was mad. Especially when it was a local derby with a local team. And I was, you know, I remember running around streets, scared out of my wits, knowing, knowing which way to run, making sure I was hanging with the black and white scarfed clan, not the red and white scarf clan, because if I was with the red and white, I would have been beaten up. You know? Or I like, grew up Catholic in a Protestant neighborhood and got beaten up on not, not, you know, not, un, not uncommonly for being Catholic. Um, I didn't care hoot about being Catholic, but that was an identity, and there was an opposing identity that caused a lot of suffering, as it did in Northern Ireland and wherever else we have religious strife in Burma with the Rohingyas and the Burmese monks. Um, so, um, so coming back to the Buddhist teaching on identity, so so I, I wanted to just surface what we just did. Um, for you to kind of play, to explore as you go through your, your week this week, like where, where, do I, where I, do I identify, you know? With my gender, with my race, with my political orientation, sexual orientation, sports team affiliation, age, You name it, and just just notice what happens when you when you sort of put on those hats. Um, yeah. So the Buddha, in his in his dissection of the self, talked about five components, five. We use the word aggregate, but it's a funny word. It actually means lumps, the five lumps <laughs> that comprise a, heaps, actually, is the five heaps that comprise a human being. Five components, I can't think of a better word. Huh? Aspects, yeah, aspects. Um, that we, that comprise the self and that which we identify with or misidentify with as who we are. The first being the body. You know, who doesn't identify with the body as me? Right? We, so we grow up in it, we live in it, we take care of it. And um, we may have a mixed relationship to it, but it's where we identify mostly as the body is who I am. Right? Nasruddin, the, the crazy wisdom Sufi, uh, mystic goes into the bank and goes to cash a check and it goes up to the teller and the teller says, do you have any ID? So he goes looking through his pockets, can't find anything, and then eventually digs in, oh, and he pulls out a mirror and said, that's me. <laughs> right? We do that every morning. We, go to, the, we go, go to the bathroom, look in the mirror, there's me, that's who I am. Oops, sorry, that's who I am. Flesh and blood. What I love about going into the wilderness for a week or longer is you don't see mirrors. Um, unless you're like Narcissus who's gazing into the, you know, the pond. Um, and we, you see, we start to free yourself from that 
self, the external reference point, which we look to for some kind of reflection or validation a lot in the day, especially if you're in the city and there's lots of windows, mirrors and stuff. And then to be out in the wilderness where there's no reflection, then you start to inhabit more the felt sense of your beingness rather than the external reference point. And it's always interesting when I come back, I'm sure as many of you do from the wilderness, and you, and you go to the bathroom, you look in the mirror, and you know, of course I'm bearded and scruffy and <laughs> smelly, and it's great. And, um, and I, see, I look in the mirror and I'm like, wow, that's so, who's that? Like, who's that? Like, that's so different than my lived, internal, visceral, sensory experience. It's like, it's like it's, it's, it feels like it has nothing to do with, with my sort of lived experience. And of course, it clearly has something to do with it. Um, so, so our bodies, right? Our bodies, even, even through the changing landscape of our body from birth, childhood, adulthood, aging, decline, um, You know, we take this to be who we are. And which is on one level fine. It's important to take care of the body and tend to it and nurture it and love it and uh, appreciate it. The, the body is an amazing thing. But it's also mostly out of our control. Right? One of the things I love to watch is getting cuts. You cut yourself, you cut your hand, gardening or something or working on something. And it bleeds, and then it stops bleeding, and then it scabs, and then the scab eventually heals, and then it's just skin again. And it's like, wow, I didn't do anything. It just did it all by itself. Like, it's amazing, you know. Or you eat, you know, some food like you did at lunchtime, and somehow the body turns cabbage into muscle or fish or whatever it is that turns it into muscle. I don't know what cabbage does, but it, you know, it becomes part of your body. And, you know, or when, it's t- when, when the body's tired, you go to sleep. And then when it's sort of more or less sort of had enough rest, it wakes itself up. All these senses, right? We have these eyes that I, I, I am never. I can never get over how amazing eyes are, right? Because the eyes give us this appearance that we're seeing the world. That that the world is exactly as it appears, even though all of this is just thrown onto some, you know, retina back there, and and the brain translates all those electrochemical signals and creates this visual landscape we call life. Like, it's amazing. Or or hearing. You know, you hear a sound and somehow the body can just register that. The mind, whatever the mind is, recognizes, processes, cognizes, understands. So, what I'm pointing to is, is... the body is, a, is, is physical organic life doing its thing. 
that we happen to be whoever we are inhabiting. We take birth in a body for however many blessed years we get to be in this life. And at some point, this body will give up, will get sick, will die um, naturally or due to some illness, cancer, whatever, heart disease. And that's it. Maybe. One of my teachers was studying in a monastery in Thailand and he was very close with this old monk who was a very revered uh, meditation practitioner and in his last hours he called my friend in to lie with him on his bed and um, in the very last hours he, he said, oh, uh, hearing consciousness gone, seeing consciousness going. Right? He tracked how different sense doors disappeared as he went, as he went into death. Like his awareness was able to track the, the, the diminution, is that the right word, of his faculties. Um, clearly knowing that the body wasn't who he was. It was just physical life returning back to the elements. <clears throat> You know, I was uh, Mother's Day celebration uh, a couple of weeks. When was Mother's Day? Two weeks ago, mid-May. And uh, was with a friend. Uh, she's got a big family locally here. Uh, three generations. So her parents were there, and then her siblings and their spouses, and then their kids. A lot, big family, very joyful gathering. Everyone's pretty happy, relatively functional. And um, they seemed to like each other enough, you know. And then, I think it was the next day, her mother gets a, um, a, a severe stroke and it shuts down the whole left side of her brain hemisphere. And um, irreparable stroke goes into a coma, still in a coma, and um, will likely, uh, you know, at some point, the, the machines will be turned off. Um, in one minute, joyful, beautiful, happy family life. The next minute, gone. At least the functioning gone. And we never know. This mysterious, beautiful, amazing thing called body can go in any moment. So the reflection as, a, as in our meditation practice is to see organic life happening by itself, conditioned. So normally what happens, in, and, and it's really we're shifting the reference point from the self to, to awareness. So in our uh, normal everyday experience, like right now I'm feeling uh, some, some hot sensations in my foot, my right foot. Right? And and from the perspective of awareness, it's just sensations, feelings, heat, tingling, vibration, numbness, coming and going due to my posture. But from the perspective of myself, it's like, oh, my foot, my foot is hurting. I don't like it. I'm going to move. And if 
I don't move, I'm really going to hurt my body, and I'm going to hate meditation. And uh, right? There's this whole different kind of frame of reference point. I am going to move right now. Because <laughs> I learned something after 35 years of meditation. If your body hurts, you can move it. It's really okay. <clears throat> but the difference between those two vantage points, one is, one is potentially reactive and suffering, and one is just noticing. It's just physical life, you know, doing its thing, gets tense, uncomfortable, achy, pain. You can move or not. Sometimes it relieves it, sometimes it doesn't. Not mine, it's not personal, it's just bodily life. In the same way that we watch the breath, the breath breathes by itself. We are not breathing, the body breathes itself. In the same way that trees inhale and exhale oxygen, we are the same thing, we're just organic life. And we can watch it sort of mysteriously. So the second layer of, um, the second aspect of uh, our experience that we identify as who we are um, is our feeling tone, uh, what the Buddha calls Vedana, which is a, one of those obscure, it's not an obscure, it's a Pali word that means feeling tone, the, the effective quality of our experience. That every moment in our life, we experience something as pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. So right now, if you look to your experience, probably some of it is pleasant. Maybe you're enjoying this lovely hall and this lovely summer day and maybe you're feeling rested and well-nourished and you know, you're sort of you know, just happy to be here. But there's probably some unpleasantness and I'm noticing I'm a little sweaty and uh, my foot's still hurting and... Um, you know, there's all kind. You know, maybe there's other kinds of aches and pains you're in, or you're feeling sad because someone you know that you love is is is, is sick, or um, you know, whatever. Um, and then there's neutral. There's a lot of things, experience that we don't really care much about, like like the color of this white wall here, this cream magnolia. Is neutral relatively, unless you can't stand magnolia, and then it's like, yeah, why is everything magnolia? It looks like hospital. <laughs> but for the most part, you know, many things you experience are neutral, and <clears throat> why is this important? Because. Um, Again, we take, we take these feelings very personally. We like pleasure. We don't like pain. We like pleasantness. We don't like unpleasantness. We don't really like neutral either. We like exciting and stimulating. And so we tend to get reactive around wanting the pleasure, not wanting the, 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 the pain. And so we get sort of caught up in, in its contention with life. Right? So, you know... Any, any, anybody watching the NBA finals? Anybody watching the playoffs? Raise your hand. Some of you? Okay, not a big... Yeah, Spirit Rock and NBA is not usually a big overlap. <laughs> Some, you know. But I notice this watching a sports game, right? It's pleasant when my team's doing well. It's unpleasant and I'm contracted when they're not doing well, which is most of the time. And um, not so much neutral. Unless it's a boring game. Um, again, from the perspective of awareness... When we can see this pleasantness, unpleasantness coming and going, not a big deal. But if we if we if we get attached, if we identify, no, I only want pleasant, I don't want unpleasant, 
I get, I get reactive. I get into a tussle. In the same way with our emotional experience, we very much identify with our emotions as who we are. Right? Again, from the perspective of awareness, they're just, they're like movies that come and go on the screen of awareness. And from that vantage point of awareness, when we're sad, we feel sad. When we feel joy, we feel joy. When we feel love, we feel love. When we feel hate, we feel hate. Not a big deal. Unless we identify, we're attached to the good stuff, don't want the unpleasant stuff. And we take a lot of identification, but I didn't hear this in the group today, but we take a lot of identification with our feelings. I'm a happy person. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a grateful person. I'm a loving person. Or we can have an equal identity. I'm a mean person. I'm a negative person. I'm a critical person. I'm a hopeless person. I'm an unlovable person. It was very painful on that end of the spectrum. There's a license plate in the valley here. Um, uh, It says, number one loser. Like That's identifying with something that's really painful. Unless they're in Weight Watchers. And then maybe that's why they have it. I don't know. Someone said that was an option. I don't know. Um, so um, this is, a, this is a one way um, that we... This really goes in a different section. Let me see where this is in my talk. Pardon? What could? Oh, right. Yes. Yes, that would be, that would be, but that would be odd. <laughs> I'm so unattached. <laughs> I'm the number one unattached person that you know. <laughs> I'm, more, I'm more unattached than you. Um, so I'm going to save this uh, piece for later. So, um, but you know, particularly with our negative judging collapsed sense of identity where which we can often take birth often identify with us as being not good enough not smart enough not cute enough not healthy enough not whatever it is enough right? we live in a culture of scarcity that's telling us you're not enough and you could do this and buy this and get this and sign up for this and you'll be fine Right? So we take on those messages. We're not enough. Oh, I need to, now I need to go to spirit work. Now I need to do a, a month-long retreat. And then I need to get a nice pashmina shawl, a nice cushion, and the bells, and, you know, and then I'll be spiritual enough. And, you know. So, so, so again, in, in, from the spect- perspective of awareness, we can see these, these facets of ourselves. Our body, feelings, uh, the third, the third place the Buddha says we identify is with our perceptions. We take our perceptions to be who we are. We take them to be right. We take them to be true. We take them to be objective. And they're mostly not. There's a great line from a Korean Zen master, Bankai, who said, don't side with yourself. Don't side with yourself. Right? But if you, like in meditation, one of the popular things we do is we have an argument, right? You know, we're arguing with our spouse or with our kids or with our boss or with politicians or whatever. You know, who's right? <laughs> we're right. They're wrong. 
and I'm going to tell him when I finish this meditation. I'm going to get on the phone and, you know, give him a piece of my mind. When I get home, you know, that's siding with ourselves, right? Siding with our perception as, 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 as who we are or, or being true. And then the fourth area that we identify as who we are, and this is particularly, I think, probably the most prevalent, well, aside from the body, is with our, with our mental processes, our thoughts, our ideas, our views. Right? We believe our, very much our thoughts to be me. My thoughts, my ideas, my views. And again, from the perspective of meditation, one of the liberating things about meditation is we can see our, our mind, I don't own my mind. I'm not in control of my mind. I can't stop thoughts. If you think meditation is about not thinking or stopping thoughts, then you're screwed. Because it doesn't work. It's not about stopping thoughts. It's about having a free, wise relationship to experience, including our thinking. So, um, you know, so we, again, we can bring awareness to that. This is from Byron Katie, um, who's a great spiritual teacher and uh, sort of a stand-up comic in my book around spiritual teaching. She says, Mind gives birth to infinite worlds of this and that, loss and sorrow, good and evil. It's complete from the beginning and yet inexhaustible in the production of what isn't. Believing what you think, you're carried off into the endless dramas of the self. Until there's peace within you, there's no peace in the world. When you're in dreamless sleep at night, is there a world? Not until you wake up and say, I. When the I arises, welcome to the movie of who you think you are. But if you question it, there's no attachment. It's just a great movie. Get the popcorn, here it comes. I live in completeness, all of us do, although we may not realize it. I gave, I don't know anything, and I gave up having to figure anything out. I gave up... um, I don't have anything to figure out. I gave up 43 years of thinking that went nowhere and now I exist as a don't-know mind. This leaves nothing but peace and joy in my life. So peace is here until the, the I thought arises. Welcome to the movie of who you think you are. Right? We wake up in the morning. Oh, I've got so much to do. I've got so little time. I'm never going to get... Th- ahead, I'm never going to get my life together, I'm never going to, you know, finish things, story, 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 I, 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 and it's all stories, and guess what, we believe them most of the time, and who's thinking those thoughts, they're arising in our mind out of conditions, out of certain habits and patterns and conditioning that we've experienced, so here's another way that we, um, suffer. This is, um, again, looking at our mind, this is called a checklist of feeling pathetic. Compare yourself and choose somebody and compare yourself unfavorably to them. Right? I bet everybody here at some point today has looked around and compared. Has anybody not compared themselves to somebody today? And probably, you know, unfavorably in some way or watching TV, or going about your work day. Examine your face and notice all the flaws. Relive, this is two, three really popular meditation pastimes. Relive an an awful embarrassing moments that occurred years ago. (laughs) 
Make a list of all the people you regularly disappoint, including those who share your last name. <laughs> and disregard all compliments, especially from people who supposedly love you. So the, the picture of the cartoon is a woman getting a compliment, and the, the person's like, hey, you look great. She's like, don't patronize me. <laughs> and resign yourself to believing that from now on, this is how you'll always feel. Right? So much pain and delusion in our thoughts when we believe them, which we do a lot. A lot. Particularly with the critic. You know, the critic says, says things like, well, you should be further along than you are. Like, well, great, I'm not. <laughs> that doesn't help me at all. <laughs> or you're never going to get your life together. You're so behind in your spiritual practice. Your mindfulness is terrible. Great, thanks. That's really helpful. Didn't know that. And of course, so we bring our, our wayward thoughts and judgments to our spiritual practice. So the friend I was having lunch with today, he told a story some years ago. Maybe I, no, maybe I shared this. Oh, no, that's, it's another story. Um, so we're actually on this retreat here, this three-month retreat. It's very quiet and lovely and deep. And, and there was this one person who was very, very loud. He just was a big energy, big guy, always had rustly jackets and would come in late and kind of bumble around and just kind of be quiet, sort of not in the flow of the retreat. And one day, my friend James, who, who has the looking good thing with the walking, he's walking, doing slow meditation. And this guy bumbles down the, this little walkway that's a lovely place to walk and rushes past James and almost bumps into him. And the thought that James had was, um, well, at least I have less self than him. <laughs> so the mind knows no shame, right? And even in, you know, if we get even competitive in the who has the less self, right? <laughs> who has the less attachment, who has the less identification. Right? So, um, yeah, so we want to pay attention to the mind, the thoughts, and, and how much we believe the thoughts, identify with the thoughts, or can we see them as just what, thought, what minds do? They create thoughts, some of them brilliant, some of them beautiful, some of them kind, and a lot of them you know, inconsequential, some of them gibberish, and some of them downright inaccurate and untrue. So we build up this sense of self through the mind, uh, what the Buddha calls papancha, this proliferation of mind. Right? And we do this constantly. You know, maybe you walk out, we, we're going for walking meditation, you go outside, you're just about to go through the door and someone doesn't see ahead of you and the door slams in your face. And the thought arises, no one ever sees me. They clearly don't like me. I mean, they just, you know, I must have done something wrong. You know, maybe I'm not welcome here. Right? Just based on the fact that the person was dying to go pee and they didn't even see who was behind them and boom, the door slammed in your face. Story making, story making. So the last um, facet of our experience, we have body, feeling, perception, thought, and consciousness. We can identify with consciousness as who we are. I'm the knowing one. 
I'm the aware one. I'm all-knowing and all-seeing and all-perceiving. Right? But really, the ego tries to claim anything and everything, but the no, awareness is happening by itself. It's got nothing to do with the ego. It informs the ego process, you could say. So with practice, we're learning to abide in this awareness, not be the awareness, not take it as a badge, but just know that that's, that's the fabric, the nature of our mind. There's a lovely line from Achen Samedo, a monk in the Theravadan tradition. He says, be the knowing, be the knowing, not the conditions that are known. So shift the reference point to the seeing, knowing awareness. So the, I'm close here, then we'll do some practice. So the, another person came to the Buddha once and asked, can you summarize your teaching in one line? And uh, in the Buddha was, a, you know, kind of verbal, you know, had a lot of teachings and great orator and, uh, and he said, in this is in well, in the Pali, it's translated as it's it's sabe dhamma nalama benevasaya, which means nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. So in this in this aggregate of experience of body, of feelings, of perceptions, of mental processes, consciousness itself, nothing is to be attached to or grabbed onto as mine or as me. It's just to be understood as an impersonal process that we live in, that we can attune to, that we can appreciate and take care of. Um, and see, it's happening by itself. Mysteriously, beautifully, elegantly. Okay, so enough talking. So I went on a bit longer than I had planned to do. Um, how about, let me see what time is it? Uh, how about we just stand up for a moment, just stretch a little, and then we're going to do some meditation together. Is this making sense of what I'm talking about? Is this for the most part? Yeah, okay, good. And so what's important is, is you know, it's very, the, the trick is to how to notice without judgment, right? Because it's very easy to use any teachings, particularly Buddhist teachings, to then judge ourselves. Right? To judge how we identify, how we get attached, how we cling. And the point isn't to judge, the point is to illuminate and, and to free up our misperceptions. So I just want to preface that, to, 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 to see that, that, to watch the mind that, that judges you for whatever habits I may have pointed to like your own checklist of feeling pathetic. You know, what are the things that you do to make yourself miserable? You know, 
wheel out that long list of all the things that you haven't done yet. I have a, I have my, my office is in my house and uh, been there a lot because I just finished writing this book last year and then I spent a lot of time writing general and, and this lovely window overlooking the bay um, and it, as I've lived in this house for a few years, it gets more and more covered in cobwebs. And every day I think, I should clean that window. Every day, yeah, I need to clean that window. Really need to clean that window. Oh, I can't believe you don't clean that window. It's still covered in cobwebs. It's getting more covered in cobwebs. It's like, yeah, I guess, I guess it is. I guess I haven't cleaned it. I guess it's not that important, really. If I really cared, I would clean it. (laughs) Can we see our humanness, our foibles, our stuff, our habits? And, um, yeah, that's just how this this one works. And then eventually it will get clean. And don't have to make a story or a drama or create suffering around it. Okay, so I'm going to start this meditation with an exercise. And um, so I learned this from my teacher in India, Punjaji. And um, <clears throat> it goes, um, so I'm going to repeat a sentence. I'm going to say a sentence. And then I want you to, so we'll do this in meditation so your eyes will be closed. I'll ask you to repeat the phrase silently. <clears throat> And then each time I say the sentence, I will reduce it by one word until we're sitting in silence. And then from that silence, we'll go into the meditation. So again, sitting comfortably. Allowing the awareness to settle into the body. Body settled into the ground, relaxed and upright. I'm just actually going to walk us through these five layers of experience. The layer of the physical body, sensation, breath. So when we close our eyes, the sense of the body can drop away. If we let go of the image of body, All we notice is a field of sensations. Tingling, vibrating, touching, pressure, weight, heaviness, lightness, contraction, expansion, warmth, coolness. If 
sensations coming and going, known in awareness. And being curious whether whether how how you identify or relate to this physical experience. Can you simply be aware of physical sensations coming and going? Touching, pressure, moving, quality of energy. Or does the I thought arise and add a layer of my body, my knee, my ankle, my sensation, my pain, my breath. I'm just simply seeing it as organic life doing its thing. Breath breathing itself. Body being itself. Feeling, sensing. Sensations ceaselessly coming and going, being known in awareness. Neither self nor not self. If the attention wanders away from here, notice how naturally and selflessly that process happens. Even though the intention is to be here, be present to the physical experience, the attention moves, wanders, drifts, 
by itself. Seemingly out of our control. And then at some point, mindful awareness surfaces. And we resume our meditation practice. Awareness of body. Awareness of sensation. And layered within our physical experience is this experience of feeling tone, where we see experience of pleasantness or pleasure, unpleasantness or pain and discomfort, or neutral. We see how each moment is flavored, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, pleasurable, painful, When we see that in the light of awareness, you don't need to react, don't need to grab after the pleasure, don't need to run, fear the pain, the unpleasantness, simply noticing how these come and go like the wind fluttering the leaves.
sensations coming and going, feeling tone, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, forever flickering and moving. The third layer of our experiences are perception, perceptual processes. Noticing the lens we look through. Perceiving with curiosity and interest, or with bias. Is the lens we look through distorted? Only wanting to experience pleasure, or avoid pain. perceive things to be me or mine and they're actually just organic, physical, mental processes coming and going. Unaware of the layer of our mental processes, for the most part we grounded awareness in body and breath and sensation. But at times noticing thoughts, emotions, images. See how the mind ceaselessly produces ideas, memories, images, plans. Noticing how that happens seemingly by itself without your control, without your volition. Rising out of conditions, sensations, memories. Notice how you might identify your thoughts or images or stories is who you are. My thought, my emotion. 
we can be fully present with these things, with awareness, with kindness. Thinking is like this. Sadness like this. Joy like this. Lastly, being aware of consciousness, awareness itself, the capacity, mind, to know, to be present. Abiding in this awareness, present to physical experience, sensations, feeling tones, Emotions, thoughts, sounds. Noticing how this whole experience coming and going by itself. Known in this awareness, not me, not mine.
in this last part of the meditation, can I state this line and when I say the sentence, I want you to <clears throat> repeat it silently to yourself. And each time I say it, to repeat it silently. I am a meditator sitting here. I am a meditator sitting. I am a meditator. I am a I am I Now take away the I What is present when you don't cling or hold to anything as I or mine? Fully present to experience, but holding it lightly. Knowing its ephemeral nature, 
knowing that nothing actually can be held onto. In this changing universe, cartoon from the New Yorker. There's a couple sitting on the couch watching TV, watching their latest show called This Week on the Amazing Race to Enlightenment. Can Jim and Susie achieve right mindfulness? And will Bob and Candy be eliminated for the relentless clinging to the self? (laughs) Coming soon to a reality show near you. One of these years there'll be a, you know, a reality show of like, you know, uh, what is it, I forget, where you get voted off the island. What is it called? Survivor. Survivor, right. There'll be meditation survivor. You're on an (laughs) intensive meditation retreat. You know, who's going to get kicked off? So and so for relentless clinging to the self. So... um, so I'd like us to move into a, a experiential practice and then um, maybe take some questions given I've said a lot this afternoon. Um, and uh, we're going to do a mindful communication exercise. And it's going to be in the form of a repeating question. So one person's going to ask the question, the other person's going to respond person who asks a question will say thank you and then ask the same question. Repeating question. So, and we'll do that one way, so one direction for a few minutes and then I'll ring a bell and then uh, we'll reverse the role. So the person who was answering will then ask the question. And you, of course, welcome to not do the exercise if you feel like you just want to do it quietly with yourself, that's also fine. Um, 
but you'll get more value probably uh, if you engage in the exercise if it feels comfortable. Um, and so the question um, is... Well, we'll keep it simple. The question is, who are you? Okay. Who are you? So one person will ask a question. So, uh, Brian, how about you do it? We'll, so we'll, we'll role play this. So you can be the question. I'll answer the question. And we'll just demonstrate it a few times just to show how it goes. Who am I? I am a human being. Who are you? So then you say thank you. Okay, thank you. So which means you're, you're acknowledging what I said. Thank you. And then you ask the question again. Who are you? <laughs> who am I? <laughs> I feel slightly intimidated by that question. Um, who am I? So you can take your time. You don't need to come up with an answer. Just who am I? I don't know who I am. Silence. Who are you? I'm smiling. And it goes on like that. So there's many different levels you can go with it. Right? It might be, who am I? Well, I'm, you know, Joe and I'm a plumber from you know, Nevada and... Um, who are you? Oh, I'm a father and a spouse. And thank you. Who are you? Um, I'm stardust. Okay. Who are you? I'm everything and nothing. Who are you? I'm really bored with this exercise, actually. <laughs> thank you. Who are you? I don't know. It's really a hard question. So it's um, reflective. You're answering the question for yourself. You're not explaining to this other person who might be a complete stranger. You're not explaining to them who you are. You're inquiring into yourself with the support of them. So they're asking the question to you that helps you reflect in a way that we might not so deeply on our own. So often when I'm asked a question like this, I'll close my eyes because I'm dropping in like, oh, who am I? I don't know. Tenderness in this moment. Okay, that's what I am. Well, that's interesting. So I'm doing it for my own self-reflection, even though I'm repeating the answer back to this person who's kindly agreeing to be the sounding board for this reflection. Right? So you get the difference? It's not. I'm not telling them. I'm really... Looking, I'm going inside out for the for the for the discovery. So, um, so we'll get into pairs, and then I'll, I'll guide us through the exercise. So, um, you can do this sitting down. You can do this standing up. Um, you might need to look around to find someone who's if there's no one next to you. So, just if you'd like to turn to someone, um, and you're welcome to not do it if you feel inclined, but please, if you can, find someone. 
Raise your hand if you need a partner. There'll be lots of you looking around. Raise your hand. Keep looking around. Behind you, Kyle, there's a chap over there. Anybody need a partner? So just before you jump in, let's just... Quiet for a second. Everybody else, everybody have a partner who needs one? Okay. So let's just take a moment, pause. Let's just close our eyes or however you center yourself and... And then one of you raise your hand. You might need to open your eyes for that. One of you raise your hand. So you will um, be the person who asks the question. So, um, so the person who raised the hand will ask the question, who are you? The, per- the other person will respond, blah, blah, blah. You'll say thank you, acknowledging what they said. And then, who are you? And we'll do this for a few minutes, and then I'll ring a bell, we'll go into silence, and then we'll switch roles. Okay? Any questions before we start? Eyes open, eyes closed, whatever supports you. Okay? Off you go. Thank you.
breathe a sigh of relief, maybe. So coming into silence again. I did forget that one thing that you can say is, maybe I did, I'd actually model it, but as you can say, I don't know. And then you pass, and, and then you pause, and then the person says, thank you, and then you says, who are you? And you go like, oh, actually there is something. That. Or, I still don't know. Thank you. So, or you can just take some pause and go, let me just take a moment to really feel into that. So, don't feel pressured just because someone asks you the question that has to be right there, because it might not be. And so, let yourself just state. And it might be a three-minute long ramble of who you are, not just one word. Yeah. Okay, so switching roles. Same question. Who are you? Blah, blah, blah. Thank you. Who are you? Off you go. Are you all good? Huh? You good? Yeah. All good?
So now what we do is have, we have each one of you come up on the stage here. <laughs> and um, now you've, you've figured out the mystery of the universe and yourself. Then we'll have you proclaim who you really are. Just kidding. Well, that would be fun. Uh, maybe not. Maybe terrifying. Um, so any comments about that? Maybe we'll get some mics. You're a mic runner and you got, you're raising your hand. I think you can go first. I was just sort of, I, I don't know, I just, I really appreciate it. So mm-hmm. I just couldn't believe what I was actually saying. And then I realized as I was talking about it, and I was like, oh my God. I, like it was almost like I held this um, metaphor in myself that I had never really quite articulated. And then as I was speaking of it, it just, I don't know. Anyway, I was, mm. anyway, very blah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> That's all I have to say. Yeah. Well, you know, I think that the reason why that form is helpful is normally with certain questions, we sort of have our rote answers. You know, if we said, okay, come up with five things, we're like, oh, yeah, I'm this and I'm that, oh, yeah, I'm that. Then. But if we have to ask that 25 times, it's like, oh, right, well, uh, what else am I? Who am I? And it hopefully goes deeper uh, or, you know, goes vertical depth or horizontal or both. Yeah, good. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Please. Oh, one over here, and then lady in the pink in the middle. That was actually a very profound experience for me. Mm. My first reaction to hearing the instructions was to leave. Mm-hmm. And I've done this exercise sometimes, or a couple of times before, um, and I just didn't want to do it again. Mm-hmm. So I found myself very resistant. But I being rather shy or introverted, I, I challenged that and, and stayed with it and found it extremely deepening for me. And mm. my partner and I, my experience with my partner was that she was extremely present mm. and that helped me to drop mm-hmm. in. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. And even if we've done this exercise, this is not a novel exercise, but um, yeah, there's... It's a deep. It's a deep inquiry, you know, and we can go different levels. And also, it also partly depends on, as you say, the context of the presence with the person listening. It's how we can be great supports to each other. We bring our presence to each other. Yeah, great. Another interesting way to do this, and you might, you know, something you can try at home, <laughs> is you do it as a looping, repeating question. So looping is when you go back and forwards. Um, so who are you? Oh, I'm nothing. And then who are you? Oh, um, everything. And then who are you? you know. And so, so, so you're you're slightly you're both doing an inquiry for yourselves, but you're also riffing off each other's. And so that can also create a sort of spiral of depth. 
Yes. Um, there was yes, please there, and then a hand over here. Yes. Um, I was just oh. going to. Mine's fairly mundane, I think. But um, I thought it was interesting that we usually start off conversations like that, as you say, like, well, you know, whatever your career might be, or whatever. I, I'm a teacher. Hold it closer. I'm a teacher, or something like that. But with this, we didn't get to that till towards the end, and mm-hmm. what we were saying was more from our heart and. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were kind of joking, kind of cosmic. Hmm. Yes, good. Good, yeah, so interesting where we go with this. At the back there, um, and then at the front here. Yeah, it was great because we got to a lot of uh, honesty, and then there was, um, listening to him, uh, it was also like, oh yeah, like, I, you know, I, I totally relate to that, or I should have said this. And then there was also a, a part of me that wanted to be the little kid and say I'm not fucking any of this like this is not me and like have a temper tantrum and like just I'm not I'm nothing I'm none of this you know and want to storm out right and uh, so it was interesting to kind of have um, that emotion kind of there yeah it's interesting which I think is part of what's going on just kind of in my life you know mm-hmm. uh, trying to get out of my the boundaries I've set mm-hmm. uh, about myself so mm-hmm yeah, good. And in the front here, yeah, we could even equally ask the question, what are you not? I had a tactical question. So how long were we doing that? About each time? five minutes. Five minutes. Yeah. And then I really appreciated just the kindness of the other person who I didn't know mm-hmm. um, and really felt so I've been feeling like a lack of connection. So it was really um, reaffirming to feel a connection again. Mm-hmm. Great, great. Nice to feel the kindness, the warmth, and the and here in the middle. I noticed two things. One is that I'm so much more accustomed to answering how I am than who I mm, am. Yes. And how often I actually then make that interchangeable. Like kind of part of what I'm hearing you talk about is how who we are is ever-changing because how we are is ever-changing. Right, right. And so it felt so good to do this exercise at the end of today. Mm. And I almost, like, in my head was imagining how I would have answered at the beginning of today Mm -hmm. and how differently my answers feel inside of me. Right. And then the other thing that I loved about doing this exercise right now is how much I truly meant each thank you. Like, it really Uh felt like... I was receiving these gems yeah. of yeah. aliveness yeah. each time I got to witness my partners yeah, sharing. Beautiful. And mm-hmm. that was um, so sweet to feel so genuinely. Mm-hmm. Nice, nice. Yeah, and I appreciate what you were saying earlier about um, you know, the you know, how are you, who are you. you know, often we get asked that question, how are you? And and then the thought, at least I have this, and I'm sure I'm not alone as well, who am I that you're asking about? On what level do you want to know, like, you know, from just the top of mind, how I'm feeling in this moment, to how am I feeling in the depth of my being? And uh, maybe in the meditation I was feeling tremendous grief for the world or tremendous expansion and dissolution. 
who, how am I? Uh, I'm a lot of different things, <laughs> depending on where I identify with that question, you know. Um, so, it'd be interesting to say, hey, who are you? <laughs> Today, in this moment. <laughs> yeah, good. Yeah. Over here? I found it interesting how kind of physical it was, like Mm. maybe after the meditation and talking about the body, but I felt, you know, at one point, I think I said, I'm sad, and then the next moment, I'm joyful, and it was like I genuinely felt both of those things, so Mm. to experience like how I was accessing different emotions within my body when I really like looked in was super interesting, and I guess to your point of having a lot of different experiences at once. Right, right, a lot of layers, and then also how fluid it is, mm-hmm. right? We can, moving in and out. Right. Expansive, contracted, joy, sorrow, right? And just, oh, right, all of that. Mm-hmm. And and also none of that. Like, it's all just moving through. Mm-hmm. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah, good. Yes, please, yeah. So I noticed two things. One is that often we get the question of, what do you do? Mm-hmm. And I often identify with my work. Right. And I didn't answer in that way at all. Uh-huh. Yeah, so that good. was a little surprising. Yeah. And then also we discovered that Sunday is both of our birthdays and we yeah. both gifted this class huh. to ourselves for our birthday. Yeah. That's very sweet. <laughs> happy birthday, happy birthday. <laughs> nice. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting, you know, where you know, we have our familiar roles, right? And and yet, in terms of, you know, who we are in our essence, right? Way deeper than that, you know. And it's unfortunate in a certain way that that's what we identify with or that's how we engage. I mean, it's fine, it's what we do socially, but it's it leaves out the vastness. Like, you know, I love, you know, when I sometimes do programs and I don't let people say what they do and just get to know someone without that usual reference point, you know, and so you get to see this whole other person, this being, you know. Yeah, we're so not our jobs, and it's a big part of our energy, but it's not, we're not, they're not who we are. Yeah, great. Please, yes. Um, <clears throat> I, I noticed, uh, like, I think a couple of you talked about the major resistance from leaving to throwing a fit. Um, <laughs> and um, uh, and I found the very first answer very... Um, kind of re- re- um, re- like relief when I could just say well I don't know I'm like I'm not sure who I am and <clears throat> and then I've, I realized that I really appreciated the changing nature of that and uh, so it kind of helped me get into feeling um, like en- enjoy that actually <laughs> the changing and the flow and um, and then by the by the end I realized like wait wait like I want to keep going. Um, and um, the other thing I noticed too, from both the perspective of someone who was answering and then the person that was saying thank you, is uh, the kind of sense of presence for, for the other person and, and that kind of getting, receiving that back and how very kind and non judgmental and like very, um, I don't know, it's, it's, it's a very private 
experience, but yet it was kind of semi-public, and it was just very, very, very special. Thank you. Mm. Mm. Yeah, no, it is very personal, and um, and yet um, also universal. Yeah, there's a lot of commonality, even though it's something so private and deep. It's often we share so many those deep layers. There's a hand at the front here, down here in, in black. Towards the end, when I was answering, I started to feel more like an evolution. So it wasn't just my my identity as a clinician or as, <clears throat> but then I was realizing, well, what do I do in my role? I'm an educator. I'm an instructor. Mm. I'm a helper. I'm. Mm. I didn't say team member. I thought about that. Mm-hmm. But all these other things, and I started hearing what people have then said, almost in feedback at work, of, oh, mm. that helped. Oh, I'm a helper. Mm-hmm. You know, and I started to, I think identify more within that one title, so to speak, of mm-hmm. whatever our profession mm-hmm. is, and all the other things that unfold within that role. Mm. That was kind of neat. Mm. And then just um, doing this exercise years ago, you know, typically it was, you know, name five things that identify you, and mom, sister, um, daughter... <clears throat> I didn't do that. <laughs> I mean, I did mom. But mm-hmm. I didn't identify as a daughter or a sister. And that was kind of interesting, I noticed, after. Because that just wasn't right in front right then. And so, mm-hmm. again, the fluidity of where we are in those moments mm-hmm. and where we are in our lives. Mm-hmm. Identifying more as a learner, a student, mm-hmm. and someone who's grasping towards different endeavors. Mm-hmm. And that seems to be more in my focus, at least. So that's how I answered maybe in a few weeks it could be or months or years it could be different or days or hours (laughs) right yeah yeah good good all right well thanks for you for doing that Um, I'm uh, tempted to um, actually do another inquiry Um, and uh, the question is uh Related but different, and the inquiry is um, or the question is Where does identification cause you suffering? Where does identification cause you suffering? So, for example, so this doesn't have to be, this is, can be a little more reflective. Um, and... Um, so, uh, where does identification cause you suffering? So, for example, for so myself, someone asked me that. I would say, um, well, when I identify as um, a person who isn't good enough or who feels like they're not good enough, then I suffer. Because I feel, because in that moment I'm believing 
that story or that idea or that view that I'm not good enough. Thank you. We can do this as a repeating question, but it could just be a monologue where you talk for a few minutes because it's, it's a more reflective question. So, but just to give it, so I won't say that again. So another way, so what did I say? Tell me a way, um, what did I say? Tell me how identification, identification causes suffering. Good students, thank you. <laughs> Tell me how identification causes you suffering. And identify meaning we take something, take one of these, uh, these temporary passing things to be true that's painful. So, um, um, so what else for myself would be... Um, uh, um, when I look at my cobwebs on the window, I think I really don't get shit done around the house. <laughs> and I really should sort of, you know, just kind of execute more. Um, so when I buy into that story that somehow I just don't get things together domestically, then I feel kind of like pathetic, really, because it's not, it would take me like three minutes. <laughs> For example, right? It can be as mundane as that. Um, uh, let me think of someone else. Let me think of an example of someone. Yeah, so for example, I was working with this student who is an amazing social worker and she's a lawyer and she does incredible work with um, uh, people who've been marginalized by the justice system and she's worked for like 40 years as this amazing attorney for, 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 for the city. And, um, but she genuinely believes that she's not, um, not a kind person. And she's got a terrible parenting and internalized the sense of unworthiness and that she's not a good person. And clearly, she spent her life devoted to helping people. She's clearly got a good heart. But her identification with that old story, that old conditioning, really is you know it's painful and, and, and deluded and suffering. So um, um, yeah, does this is this I mean, yes questions? Is the question like who do you think you should be instead of who are you? Is that what you're getting at? No, no, that would be another. That could be no. That would be a different question. Yeah, it's more, we, we have, you know, so you've named many of these identities, who, who are you, this and that and that. And probably those identities were mostly, I would imagine, sort of on the positive spectrum. You know, rather than like, well, I'm really a pathetic loser and uh, I'm just a hopeless case and I'm really unlovable. Like I doubt, you know, maybe some of you were speaking to that, but I doubt that was more looking at just, you know, your humanness and, 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 and the sort of more universal nature. and But... The, the, partly the point of this teaching is to look at where, where selfing creates suffering. I mean, that's another way you could say that question. Where does selfing create suffering? Right? So when I'm selfing myself, I feel separate. When I'm selfing others, I feel judgment. When I'm selfing, when I'm making a self around, um, you know, like I live here, my parents live in England, I could make a selfing story that I'm not a good 
not a good son because I, I can't be available enough for my parents because they live 6,000 miles away. Right? So it's those stories. But where do those selfing stories cause suffering? Right? That, you know, I mean, the easiest place to go to is the critic. Right? What is the critic telling you that you're believing and identifying that's true, that you're a you know, bad you know, person or, or, or inconsiderate you know, family member or whatever the story is, right? You getting what I'm getting at here? I'm, I'm still Question. I just, I'm, I just wanted to say this that for me, uh, grandiosity and comparing from another direction is causes an enormous amount of suffering. Yeah. It's so. Not just the inner critic; it, it can be the inner. Yeah. Uh, what, yeah. Of course, any identification uh, is suffering. Um, just not as obvious some than others. Yeah. So, Brian? Yeah, I guess I'm, I'm still kind of not clear what's going to happen. So, we, so, one person will ask the question where does Tell me a way your selfing or your identification process causes you suffering. And then the other person talks as long as, as, they, long as they want to talk. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And if they run out of things to say, then you go, then you, you use the question just to prompt the inquiry. But it may be that they take the, the, a few minutes talking. Yeah. We're just looking at where this material today, right? So from some of you might identify with yourself as a body and, you, and you've got judgments and views and, and body image issues that causes a lot of pain. That's a way that identifying with my body causes suffering because I believe it's not the way it should be, for example. Quick question. Did you say a few minutes ago that any identification is suffering? Can be, if we attach to it and cling to it. Okay. Yeah. 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 Okay. So um, get yourself into pairs. Could be the same person. Could be a different person. I'll guide us through the exercise. Don't worry. Don't think too much about it. Whatever exploration will will be of value. Raise your hand if you need a partner. Anybody need a partner? Okay, so um, decide which one of you is going to be partner A. And the question being, tell me a way that your selfing process, that your, the, the ways that you identify cause you suffering. Tell me a way that your identification process, selfing process, causes you pain. Uh, I'll time it. It'll be about, be shorter. Be like four minutes. I'll ring a bell in four minutes.
So coming into silence for a moment, wrapping up your last uh, sharing. So I was thinking of a very mundane um, example. It's not exactly a lot of suffering. But for example, when I'm watching my soccer team, Newcastle United, playing on TV, that identification causes suffering because it's mostly painful to watch and they mostly lose. And it's a, it's a way that if, if I'm attached to that identity, I feel when I'm watching the game, I'm like tense and anxious and like, and pissed off when they lose, right? That's, that's a way that my identification with that team causes, it's not a lot of suffering, but you know, but it, it's a metaphor, right? Just like the election, when I'm attached to a certain position or party or politician, right? That attachment of how it should be Right? My attachment to my views, to my whatever it is, right? that in the moment and in the long run can cause suffering. Right? My attachment to an idea of how I want my body to be or my life to be, right? that's, that's an identification that is not necessarily in my hands. So just to give you some examples. Okay, so switching roles, same question. To tell me a way that you're... You know, your identification, selfing process causes harm to you or others.
So thanking your partner and when you're ready come back to your seat. Okay, any comments, feedback? Was that helpful? Please over here on the on the left. To my left on the, on the window. Left. Yep. Sorry, I'm still transitioning. That's okay. Um, I'm I'm curious about um, identity, identifying with something, um, and then a separate thing, which is the need to be perfect or good at something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that a lot of the pain in the identity comes from when you're not doing good at that thing that mm-hmm. you identify as. Mm-hmm. What if we weren't conditioned to be perfect, mm-hmm. have this sense of perfection? Does, is identity still extremely flawed? Mm-hmm. Or is it, can it be more fluid? Like, is that a critical piece? Right. Yeah, no, I think the fluidity is the important. The, holding it lightly, right? We all have plenty of roles and identities. It's mother, child, parent, teacher, student, voter, whatever it is, right? We, go, we move through the day with many different kinds of identities. It's when we cling to them as this is who I am. That's where we get into problems because it's not who you are ultimately and it's going to change you will change, it will change. And um, so it's really the holding them lightly, just as my friend did with, I'm not your father, I'm not your daughter, right? It's a yes, I'm your parent, and, but our relationship is way more interesting, complex, and diverse than that. So, and then, yes, the second layer is we don't just identify with things, then we have uh, uh, some kind of internalized standard, and then a critique, and usually we fail in our assessment of our ability to live up to that role or identity, and therefore so we add further further suffering onto suffering, or further suffering into identity by creating this impossible standard around it. You know, it's fine to have some aspirations to excel at teaching or parenting or whatever it is that you're doing, but to see... Um, it's when we believe that identity is who we are, then we care more about whether we're good in it or not. You know, if I if I hold the teacher role lightly, then whether I give the crappiest talk, which I did last week, or a good talk, it's like, okay, well, you know, some good, some bad. 
doesn't mean it's not it's not it's not saying the essence of who I am is either good or bad. It's just you know in this teaching role, some days are good and some days are not so good. You know, and that's just how it goes. So there's a kind of freedom and a spaciousness in the role in the identity in, in, as we move through life. Does that make sense? Yeah. And then the as you're pointing to the the critic and the and the judging and the high standards that just adds a whole other layer to how selfing and identifying with certain roles and identities is more it becomes more problematic. Yeah. So yes. Um so my question is sort of reconciling healthy sense of self with having um, meaning, purpose, and convictions. Yes. So you spoke about um, when people retire, there was that increased, you know, mortality. Um, so how can you hold hold things lightly, hold identities lightly, but still be someone who has um, strong convictions or beliefs, and you know, lives consistently with them? If you're also trying to kind of hold things lightly. Yeah. No, it's a great question. I've got a really good reading that I that, that I want to read. Um, to sort of close out this day um, and um, you know like one can be a really good activist and do amazing work in the world but if you're attached to the identity of an activist that's going to get in the way right if I'm attached to being a democrat and I have an opposing position with a Republican, my attachment to my identity as a Democrat is probably going to get in the way of me actually being able to meet that person and have a meaningful conversation because I'm stuck in my identity, which is usually has some flavor of superiority and rightness in it, and the other identity has, you know, therefore deficient. So for sure one can do work passionately, engaged, um, fully, but watch the, the selfing or the inflation that comes with that. Right? We see a lot of great people, politicians, activists, um, people doing good work in the world, and the role goes to the head, right? just as it goes to teachers' heads, spiritual teachers' heads, and, and, and there's inflation, and that get, tends to cause problems. Right? So we can use, the idea is you use the role, you know, it's like the teaching role is a, great, is a privileged role in which I can really help and impact people. But if I get caught up in my own press release that that means I'm special because I'm a teacher, that gets in the way of me actually being able to do the work, to do the work well. So I want to read this piece from Stephen Batchelor, who's a wonderful Buddhist uh, scholar and teacher. And um, he um, has a very interesting take on this whole conversation around self. He says, rather than dismiss the self as a fiction... Gotama, the Buddha, presented it as a project to be realized. By self, he referred not to the transcendent self of the Brahmins, which by definition cannot be anything other than that which is eternal, but he was speaking to the functional moral self that breathes and acts in the world. He compared this self to a field a potentially fertile ground that when irrigated and tended to enables plants to flourish. He compared it to an arrow, a wooden shaft, metal head, and feather fletching, which when assembled can be projected on an enduring course to its target. 
and he compared the self to a block of wood, something one can fathom, fashion and shape into a utensil or roof beam. In each case, simple things are worked and transformed to achieve human ends. Such a model of self is more pertinent to a lay person living in the world than to a monk or a nun intent on renouncing it. It presents a very different sort of challenge. Instead of training oneself to achieve a serene detachment from the turbulent events of this life, it encourages one to grapple with these events in order to imbue them with meaning and purpose. The emphasis is on action rather than inaction, on engagement rather than disengagement. So this is a whole other sort of layer of teaching which I think is really important around, and it comes back to the conversation about choice uh, and intention and um, um, you know, there's, there's, there's a way of framing the teaching um, that we, it's, it's a slightly um, has problematic, it's a problematic frame, but, but there's, there's, it's, a, it's a way of framing the teaching of, of, of a relative an ultimate layer of meaning in experience. And what I mean by that, um, from an ultimate perspective, the self is purely a, an impermanent, um, uh, insubstantial process. There's no inherent self to be found in you or me or anyone. Yet, clearly, there are a bunch of selves in here who are going to go home and see your family and go to work and, and, and feed the birds and plant a garden and you know do email. And that self, that relative sense of self that is existent and real and the place that we live in most of the time, what he's pointing to is that self, that relative self we need to be present to, we need to uh, take care of, we need to uh, act ethically and kindly with care, we refine and cultivate this thing called me, called self, um, we, um, you know, we, we cultivate ourselves through meditation, through awareness, through kindness, through love, um, and in that process, our self or our self-referencing Actually, gets lighter and lighter. My experience on the spiritual, on the Buddhist path, is in the beginning, it's a lot of self-focus. We focus on ourselves. We cultivate mindfulness to our mind, to our body, to our heart, to our stuff, to our neurosis, and it can seem arduous and painful and difficult. And over time, we start to iron out and release some of the the toxins and and the the, the painful mental habits and the and the ways that we react and act out suffering. And over time that gets refined, we, we get less embroiled, less entangled in our mind, in our emotions, in our body image and all kinds of stuff. And so that frees us. The, the self becomes a, you know, it's like a refined vessel, a refined vehicle in which we can then engage with each other and the world with more clarity, with more uh, compassion, with more... Um, fluidity and, and responsiveness, um, and so so we're working at both levels at the same time. Even knowing that this very self that I'm refining and cultivating through meditation and kindness and awareness and letting go, um, the essence of that is unfindable. You know, 
So, and this, the, the, if, for the scholars in the room, the second wave of Buddhism that came after the Buddhist teaching was the Mahayana, and it's, it's epitomized in a sutra teaching called the Heart Sutra, where, and the Diamond Sutra, where one, basically, orientation of one life, of one's life, is to dedicate oneself to the relieving of the suffering of beings, even though there are no beings that really exist. <laughs> right? That I'm going to help you and I'm going to care for you and do what I can to relieve your suffering, even though I know inherently there's no fixed separate self there, here, there, or anywhere. Right? It's a paradox. Right? But the, 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 the resolution of the paradox, the understanding of ourselves and freeing ourselves from identity, attachment, misperception, misidentification, is we have more freedom in relationship to our mind, body, heart experience and the world and we can actually function better in the world because we're lighter here. We're not stuck in our positionality of being me or being whatever I'm identifying with. Right? Does that make sense? So there's kind of a lightness to it. So we do this work to free ourselves up so we can function more effectively in the world. So someone says, well, that was the shittiest talk I've ever heard. I go, oh, well, there's always tomorrow. I'll try better next time. Sorry you didn't like it. Like, it's not like, oh, my God, I'm a terrible person. I should just, you know. No, it's like, you know, you know, or whatever it is. You know, we're parenting and our teenage kids turn around and say, you're the worst parent ever. I'm like... I'm sorry you feel that way, honey. I'm doing my best. <laughs> and I know you, this will change. <laughs> um, or whatever. So there's a, there's a way we hold ourselves lightly, more humor, more playfulness, um, more freedom, you know, more freedom to be, more freedom to engage. Um, you know, one of the signs, I think, of a healthy, mature spiritual practice is we don't take ourselves so seriously. We can laugh at ourselves. We, we, take, we hold things lightly. We, care. we hold things carefully, but lightly. Right. Um, so, yeah. Yes, please, question here. Oh, sorry, let's, let's go. This is person first and in black, and then there's a question over there. So it makes sense to me how holding on to our identity lately can be helpful. Like, for example, as an artist, I just need to create some art. It doesn't need to be sold or people love it. Um, but there are some things for me that are a moral question that I realize I suffer a lot for. Um, one of them is that I'm an environmentalist. And just watching what's happening makes me feel a lot of suffering. But it's not something that I can hold on to lightly or it doesn't feel that way. It's not something I, I can give up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there are a lot of things that are deeply painful in this world. And uh, I'm not speaking, the lightness doesn't mean we don't feel tremendous pain and sorrow. You know, whether, you know, there's a lot of very intensely painful things happening right now, ecologically, particularly, but also socially. Um, and, um, uh, you know, and and, and you know, the, the practice allows us to actually feel that more, feel the grief, feel the pain, feel the compassion, um, and um, 
you know, it actually broadens our ambit of concern so we get out of our own self-absorption, self-referencing, self-focus and we start to feel and see the pain in the world and feel the pain of the earth and species and um, marginalized communities and, you know, just all the, the immensity of suffering in the world. So it actually tenderizes us. We're, more, we're, more, we're going to feel more and we're going to also be more responsive to the world. So, um, so it's not about... So when I say free from suffering, it doesn't mean we don't feel the pain and suffering of the world, because we do. Um, and, um, you know, and, and hopefully as we cultivate these practices, you know, with the, these practices, uh, one of the things I appreciate about the, of the Buddha's framework was he really had a broad understanding of human experience and what it means to walk this path and we're not just cultivating awareness or insight we're also cultivating love we're cultivating equanimity we're cultivating steadiness we're cultivating balance we're cultivating patience right There's all these qualities that are necessary to grow to meet the world to meet ourselves to meet each other to meet the world um and and one of the things that when we're, we're we're being asked to meet is the you know, we're the pain of, of the ecological crisis, climate emergency, and um, and what we're doing to the planet and each other and to species, and it's hard. Um, yeah, you could say that that that, that uh, you know, hum- humanity's over identification with itself and its needs has led us into this crisis, as well as our own greed and hatred and delusion, also. So, um, I'm going to have to pause here because I, I, I we're at the end of time, and I want I, I want to make sure that we um, we end on time. So, a um, couple of things just to wrap up. Um, mostly, just thank you for your your practice today, um, and your willingness to do these inquiries. They're not necessarily easy. Sometimes they can be confronting. Um, but hopefully there was some learning in the, in the looking at who you are and looking at ways that your identification process uh, can be painful. Um, you know, the, the, this theme, this teaching on self, not self, is a, it's a deep reflection. You know, it's counterintuitive. It doesn't make sense to the mind. Um, it's paradoxical. Um, and it requires you know, some deep reflection. I've been reflecting on this theme for 35 years. And I, um, it's, as, it's on one level still as mesmer- um, uh, perplexing as it was when I started reading about it in you know, 1984. Um, it's one of those things that keeps us probing. You know, this, it's, it's this mystery of existence and non-existence of self and other of um, of being a separate individual and being also part of a collective unitive experience um, and so um, you know that phrase from Nisargadatta which I don't think I mentioned yet he says this beautiful phrase uh, wisdom tells me I am nothing right that's the the reflection on selflessness wisdom tells me I am nothing Love tells me I'm everything. Between the two, my life flows. 
Right? And that's really how we hold life. But wisdom tells me I'm nothing. If I look deeply, I can't find a place of substance anywhere in mind-body-heart experience. But that nothingness isn't an empty, void nothingness. It's, it's filled, can be filled, with love, with heartfulness. Wisdom tells me I'm nothing. Love tells me I'm everything. Between the two, my life flows. We flow between those seeming polarities. So, so take some of these thoughts, questions, reflections, put them to work in your life, in your meditation. Reflect on the selfing process, on these, what's called the five skandhas, these, these processes we looked at, body, form, feeling, perception, mental uh, experience and consciousness. Just watch this dance of self, this accordion of life, ebb and flow, sometimes very small, tight, contracted, sometimes dissolved, merged, empty, as vast as the universe, right? This is the mysterious, beautiful dance of life as a human being that we, uh, behooves us to attend to. When we don't attend to it, when we don't understand, we uh, identify, we contract, we suffer. And so this is the invitation um, to explore so, a um, couple of closing comments. Um, I do have my new book here. Uh, just came out. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a thorough exploration on the path of mindfulness. It's called From Suffering to Peace, The True Promise of Mindfulness. It's really a deep diving into the depths of mindfulness from, from the perspective of uh, these teachings. Um, and it's exploring how to cultivate mindfulness and freedom in the body, in the heart, in the mind, in the world. I will stay behind to sign some if anybody wants to buy those. I also have my other books on sale. Um, And I have a couple of postcards. Um, One of the things I love to do is train people to teach these days as mindfulness grows. Um, I care a lot about the quality and the depth of training teachers. Um, so Kyle was in one of my the first uh, mindfulness teacher training in England. Um, and um, I'm so I'm running another one there in England uh, coming up in September, and then I'll be doing another one here in Berkeley uh, next year, next fall. Uh, I'm also running a meditation and nature teacher training, so the, so that's integrating my my love of nature with mindfulness practice and, and supporting and training teachers, students how to uh, bring these practices uh, into the outdoors, into different communities. So if that's of interest to you, please pick up a card or drop me an email through my website. My website's markcoleman.org. If any of you live in Sebastopol, I'm going to give a book talk in Sebastopol tonight. Um, uh, at 7 o'clock or something in one of the bookstores, Copperfields. Um, I'm going to be giving a book talk in San Francisco at Eugene Cash's SF Insight Group on Sunday. And um, you know, I'm here a lot at Spirit Rock um, Actually, on Monday, teaching a retreat, but I'm here Monday nights a lot, and um, yeah, and and do a lot of nature retreats uh, all over the the Western states and Mexico, and so lovely to get to know you. Nice to see friends again, and uh, be well, and be kind, and see you again. Take care. Thank you. I'll stay behind if you have questions. <laughs>